0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Hold your ears,
2: folks.
1: It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth.
3: Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring.
2: Turn
4: it off.
5: the United States rises 400 percent. 1991, the United States police force is formed. 1997, New York City is a walled maximum security prison. John Carpenter's escape from New York. Kurt Russell. Sport Nine Donald Pleasance, Isaac Hayes, Season Hugley. Adrian Barbeau as Maggie. John Carpenter's Escape from New York, the ultimate adventure of escape and survival.
2: Welcome to The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Aaron Peterson. Hey,
6: Mike. I feel like Rocky. I feel like I've been training for this episode my entire life. Honestly,
0: I
2: really have. Also back in the booth is Father Malone. You know, the last time we recorded a podcast, it was you, me, and Fresno Bob. You want to know what they did to Bob? we continue our discussion of John Carpenter with a look at escape from New York released in 1981. The film was written by Carpenter and Nick Castle and stars Kurt Russell In his first tough guy role, he plays Snake Plissken, a former Special Forces soldier turned criminal who is given a chance at redemption after the president's plane goes down in the prison colony once known as Manhattan. Yes, it's the dystopian future, the distant year of 1997, where all of the criminals are walled off on the island and it is turned over to the roving gangs of criminals. And, of course, the chud. That's
5: when the Juds came
2: at me. We will be spoiling the film as we go ahead, so if you haven't seen Escape from New York, just turn off the podcast, go watch it. Shame on you. And you can come back if you want to, but regardless, just watch the movie. Father Malone, when was the first time you saw Escape from New York, and what did you think? I saw this movie during its first
0: theatrical run, um, thanks to a large group of irresponsible older cousins who dragged me to every movie they went to, so... I suppose I saw this movie in Saugus, Massachusetts in July of 1981. That was at General Cinemas. I just responded to it on every level. What I related to most was the concept of urban blight or urban decay. It's not new, but it felt like in the late 70s that everything was just crumbling. And here was a movie that really embraced that concept and spun it out in a fantastical way. Like, it wasn't the shiny future we kept getting from sci-fi movies, but it wasn't the complete opposite, which is like the, you know, the decimated collapsing warehouse worlds of most dystopian futures. And so I responded to it on that level. And then it gave us a lead character that was seemed to me at least rare at the time. I know you can't throw a rock without hitting an antihero these days, but at the time there was kind of no one like him on my radar. And then. Underneath that, the whole concept of a citywide prison, to my eight-year-old mind, was the most frightening thing I could possibly imagine. Like, as bad as it could be to be in prison, at least they had the appearance that somebody was trying to keep you safe. But here, it's just a free-for-all. All that, you know, and the acting, and the music, and the action, the music in particular. It really set the bar really high as to how good an action movie can be. And I'm still measuring movies against this one to
2: this day. How about you, Aaron?
6: I was 9 or 10, I think, and we either rented it or – honestly, I don't remember exactly where I watched. I know it wasn't in the theater. I either rented it or it was one of those HBO free weekends. Remember, they had those back in the day. And from the opening music cue to the final smoke, I I didn't move. I didn't move. I didn't leave my seat. I was enthralled the entire time, absolutely enamored with the film, yes, but mostly the, the character of Snake Plissken. He was everything I wanted to be. I grew like I told you in the last episode. I grew up in a very rough neighborhood, so I wanted to be that guy. I wanted to be a badass. I wanted to be tough and able to just get out of trouble and have a glorious quaff of hair. And this movie began my my lifelong love obsession with Kurt Vogel Russell. The name's Pliskin.
2: I remember going to dinner with my folks and one of my cousins, one of my older cousins, and. The cousin had seen Escape from New York and was basically telling them the entire plot of it. And I was, God, I I was probably nine years old when this movie came out, so way too young for it. And my cousin didn't take me to go see it. He just described the whole thing for me. It was a lot of years later before I finally saw the film, and I... Just absolutely loved it. I think that by this time, by the time I saw it, I was already familiar with Spaghetti Westerns, so seeing Kurt Russell do this riffing on Clint Eastwood and then having Lee Van Cleef in there as Hulk, it really scratched an itch. It really paid homage to my favorite of the Dollars trilogies for a few dollars more, I really like their relationship in that. And they're more antagonistic in this one, though there is a little reluctant admiration between Hawk and and Snake. I don't think it's the other way around, necessarily. (laughs) It is is not. (laughs) But, my God, that relationship, the story itself, like you said – it's taken me a lot of years before I realized just how bad New York was in the late seventies. This was written in what, 76. So that would have been the perfect time to write this. You know, I talked about this on the Wolfen episode. I've talked about it on other episodes. I mean, New York, we talked about, it especially on the cruising episode, cruising is very much that. Ford says the city, drop dead kind of thing. It's this whole idea of New York being completely bankrupt financially, and then eventually um, emotionally and structurally and, and spiritually, it made sense that New York was headed in this type of direction. And yeah, I, I absolutely was so thrilled with this kind of dystopian world of urban decay.
6: Father Malone alluded to it. I don't know if you guys feel the same way as I do. But for me, this was very much like the first dark science fiction movie I had seen as a kid. I remember, you know, Star Wars and a lot of films of that in that vein were out. But this was the first time where I saw one where it was like a dystopian future. And you've got a guy who's really not a good guy. And you've got a world that's just awful. And... It's dark. Everything about it is dark. Like, there's not really hope in this movie. And I don't think I had seen that up until that moment, which is which might be why it stuck with me so much.
0: The sort of dystopian films we had gotten previous to this were, you know, either like a total nuclear holocaust hellscape or set far enough in the future where it felt alien, regardless of how they were trying to tie it to what we were going through in our own lives. And this one seemed to be like, this is just a heightened version of our reality. Like you could see this coming to pass a lot quicker than Soylent Green or, uh, or, uh, Omega Man or something like that. So it felt very lived in and very real. I mean, Carpenter did a phenomenal job of making this world never seem anything like a reality. At no point in this movie can I look at something and just go, Oh, well, we're on a set now. And this is, you know, what for, 40 years later, like all of the, uh, all of the production design and all of the, the look of the movie just really holds up crazily. But yeah. And at the time, there really wasn't anyone making that kind of a, a futuristic movie where it's relatable in the present, but you can also see as, you
2: know, 16, 17 years down the line. Now I had seen. Mad Max to The Road Warrior, before I saw this movie, but also to your point, it's 1982 when that one comes out, so a year after this one, and it being set in Australia, it's foreign in that way and foreign in the whole desert landscape I'm from just outside of Detroit so the idea of this like urban blight I was pretty familiar with it so <laughs> Mad Max you know that's its own thing and this was the first time that I saw an American city other than real life but an American city the set of a dystopian film which I I yeah I I absolutely loved it and I loved the stars, I loved the cast of this film. Everybody down to the smallest player is really given their all. And you see those familiar faces. We've talked about some. We talked about some last week when we talked about Assault on Precinct 13. You get a lot of those same faces back, plus some of the people that Carpenter had worked on films with in between. So seeing Tom Atkinson here, of course, Adrian Barbeau. But yeah, you got Charlie Cyphers in here as well. Just all of these great faces. And then, of course, Frank Doubleday as Romero. I mean, he became the face of the movie and a lot of the advertising. Just that crazy hair and those sharpened teeth that he has. Oh, man. And that fucking crazy laugh that he does in the movie. is just fantastic.
0: I think Romero's introduction it might be my favorite character introduction of any film. It's indicative of what made Car- Carpenter his early work so great was he would allow a scene to happen as long as it needed to. He, it didn't seem like every scene was sort of on a clock, like he was cutting to, to get us to the next thing. So Romero saunters up to the scene and, and he lets him do that. And it's so weird. And it's like the, it's the perfect. I mean, if you could have turned the entire prison into a character, here it is, because he's so weird and kind of freaky and uncompromising and clearly insane. By the way, the little bow that he does to Hauk is one of the best things I've ever seen in any film. Just, like, so flippant, but at the same time,
2: like, in control, like, yeah, I love Romero as a character. Just that he won't answer them after a while and just keeps counting down. It's so good. (laughs)
1: if touch me he dies
5: if you're not in the air in 30 seconds he dies if you come back in he dies 20 seconds
2: I'm ready to talk
5: 19 18 what do you want? 17 16 let's go, let's go
2: that they cut away and here's hawk and his men and they're just like shit let's get out of here we don't want the president to die and then cut back to romero for his hiss it's like oh that is so nice like that that didn't need to be there but it was the perfect way to put a button on that scene
6: oh it needed to be there It needed to be. It was It was a perfect dynamic. It's a power dynamic. It's just showing you, you know what? We can't negotiate. We're not negotiating with you. We'll tell you what the deal is when we're ready to tell you. Get out of here. By the way, I'm scary.
2: It's very obvious to the three of us why I chose this movie to talk about after Assault on Precinct 13. But when you're watching this film and here comes a fucking bus showing up on Liberty Island with just one prisoner now who is such a badass. I mean, this is this is Napoleon Wilson part 2. This is the next generation having Snake Plissken introduce the way that he's introduced coming off of this bus. Though it is interesting that that wasn't the original introduction. I do like that people have pieced together out of different outtakes and deleted scenes and all this they uh I have seen a fan edit now of that original opening. I'm glad that they cut that original opening, but it is still fascinating to see, you know, because I like Snake Plissken so much. It is interesting to see that first robbery and how it goes wrong and just that he's trying to help out his buddy. And I'm, I'm not sure if that's Fresno Bob at that
0: point or something. No, that's a character named Taylor. No, because Fres- the Fresno Bob situation was
2: four years ago in Kansas City. And God, I love that we have all these references to past adventures. With no explanation. Yeah. And it's that that thing that I like about the original Star Wars is when they will talk about things that happened in the past and we don't have to see them. So thank God there hasn't been like a series of prequels of Snake Plissken's early adventures.
6: There's a pretty clean version if you've got the special edition DVD or... Uh, Blu-ray, which, you know, if you get the steelbook case or anything like that, it's got the the actual opening scene put together pretty well on that that you can see. I mean, it was a solid opening. I just I do feel it's distracting from the story.
0: I was ecstatic just to see it because, like you said, Mike, like any chance to see more of Snake Plissken is a is a benefit. But like the fact that we're told he robbed the Federal Reserve Depository. In my mind, not knowing how he got caught was so great because you could only imagine the Herculean effort it would have taken to get this guy. But when we're given, what we're given here is kind of dumb in a way that like the way they're escaping is on a train, which is like the least beneficial to a criminal way to get away because there's a stop and a start. Then it takes virtually nothing to get him. He doesn't, I mean, we get, I get it that he goes back for his friend and whatever, but like it, it, it does a disservice to the character and that it gives him, A backstory that only enriches his character not having
6: it does show that he's willing to go back for his comrade though i mean it does show that he has a loyalty he he has a code I, i do think that was explained in that opening because he does you know like you said he was he could have gotten away he was free and clear and he goes back for his friend is what happens and it's too late and that's where he gets caught so at least we know he has a code it's a very flawed code but it's his own code
0: But it's not something that we're not going to get from him later in the movie. You know, I mean, he doesn't... For the most part, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't, like, stay with Maggie until the final moment, but he does his best to keep her moving and with them, you know? Like, so... And the fact that when he when we meet Brain and he's excoriating Brain for leaving them there, it's like, we're going to find that out about him. But the fact that this bus pulls up and this guy gets out and he, it's all completely silent till we get down into the thing and they like hold it. And instead of like reading us his like, uh you know, his crimes and whatever, it just blacks right out like he remains a mystery through most of the movie. And that's so great to be able to sort of reveal little bits about him along the way.
2: I really like that fade to black that they have. And when the person says hold it, I always think. Is that Hawk saying that? Like, are we in, the, in like a weird time loop or something? <laughs> because then we get his introduction, Hawk's introduction after that. And then we get the whole setup of the plane and all of this. And I, I mean, it's, it's silly, but I really enjoy the female gorilla fighter on the plane and her very, um, particular way of speech. I always like the way that she, is excoriating the US and just talking about you know the the racist state that they're in and that it's the national liberation front and I'm just like yeah this is good it's the thing too playing in 1981 it's like yeah we were still getting a lot of hijacked planes you know this was not a non occurrence you know the, I can't tell you the last time a plane has been hijacked but it seemed like Growing up in the '70s, that that was the thing that you could hijack a plane pretty darn easy. I mean, it was a punchline for a lot of years. Is like turn this plane around, or this plane is now going to Cuba, and this is exactly that here. And having this, you know, small faction of people—well, who knows how large their faction is—but having this terrorist group i was just like okay yeah yeah. and and using that name the national liberation front i'm just like okay these guys are probably friends with the symbionese army
0: a funny thing about that particular scene having watched the movie on videotape for nigh on 20 years just pan and scan versus widescreen in the pan and scan version of that, it's a close-up of her the entire time. And you can't see that there are two guys with their throats cut just to her left and, and, and behind her. And, like, seeing it again when they finally put this out in Letterboxd was, like, jarring. Like, wow. Like, you know, yeah, a reminder that Carpenter was painting at a full-frame sort of uh, situation. And the other scene, like, later in the movie when they're on the train and Snake is trying to get the president, he sort of sneaks up in the background and breaks that one guy's neck. That whole scene was not in the pan and scan. It was close up of this guy and the president, which gives us nothing at all. Like he's what are you looking at? And
2: like, I don't know. What was he looking at? the cinematography in this movie is so good, and listening to some of the audio commentaries and hearing how Dean Cundy was just so fast with lighting some of these things, like looking at some of the street scenes that there are, especially when Snake first gets to the island, and he's walking, and you've got a lot of red lights, and then you've got these magnesium-type fires going on and these barrels, and just that walk-by kind of scenes of him in New York. There's one shot, I think it's before the person comes up and starts pounding on the manhole covers, where it's very green lit and it just—I really like the way that it looks. And you can see the streetlights going; almost looks like it to infinity kind of thing. I really appreciate just how great this movie looks.
6: What did you guys feel about the introduction of Snake? Because you've got this guy that we're supposed to root for, and this is back when heroes were pretty were pretty black and white. So it, you always had. The guy that goes in, you know, he's going to save the girl. And here you have a guy who literally ignores a woman in peril as soon as he gets to New York. From the beginning, I mean, he's very flippant to the government figure about saving the president. So for us sitting there, that obviously at that time was kind of like, wow, is, is he even a hero? Is he really, you know, antihero wasn't really a term as much back then. What did you think about the introduction of Snake?
0: Are we talking about the the sort of first scene between him and Hauk? Well,
6: just in general, just like the the character that they first introduce us to about how he's flipping about authority. He immediately ignores a woman in peril. Like these are these are typically things that are never done by a hero and they do it right off the bat. So it's our immediate introduction to this guy, which is we don't know if he's a hero, but he's definitely
0: not great. He's not. I mean, you know, like the, the sort of early scene where he does not help, uh, that punker girl, like being assaulted, that was kind of shocking, uh, definitely shocking. But we're dealing with a guy who's on a mission that he does not want to be on. And, uh, you know, it's pretty established from the get-go that he is a criminal. The sort of cynicism about authority figures, like, is just ingrained. And maybe this movie helped, helped me on that path, but, I can certainly relate more to his hero than I could, like, Luke Skywalker or, you know, any of the sort of uh heroes from fantasy or sci-fi heroes in the past who were always doing the right thing to do the right thing. Like, I, I could never quite relate to, like, a, a knight who's just going to go fight that dragon because it's the thing to do. He was a- definitely a breath of fresh air as far as what a hero can be, and he, he definitely proves himself to be the hero no matter what. Like, you know, he does get that job done and doesn't let anyone off the hook.
5: I have a deal for you. It was an accident about an hour ago. A small jet went down inside New York City. The president was on board. President of what? That's not funny, Pliskin. You go in, find the president, bring him out in 24 hours, and you're a free man.
3: 24 hours,
5: huh? I'm making you an offer. Bullshit straight just like i said i'll think about it no time give me an answer get a new president we're still at war plissken you need him alive i don't give a fuck about your war or your president is that your answer i'm thinking about it think hard why I me mean, you flew the gulf fire over leningrad you know how to get in quiet you're all i've got i guess i go in one way or the other doesn't mean
2: shit to me give me the paper when you come uh, in. before Told you I wasn't a fool. Call me snake. I've mentioned Clint Eastwood before, and of course, I keep thinking of him in the spaghetti westerns, but you also have Clint Eastwood as Dirty Harry. Dirty Harry is very much fed up with the way the politics are run in San Francisco. I think he would basically say, get a new president if he didn't like who the current president was. But Dirty Harry would have stopped those guys from roughing up that punker girl. I don't know if Joe slash Blondie slash whatever, I don't know if he would have stopped that. He might have, because you do have that backstory of like, I'm doing for you what nobody did for me. I think we've seen it before, maybe a little bit in some of the other spaghetti Western heroes, like a Django or like a Sartana, you know, some of these other more badass characters. It's troubling that he doesn't help somebody when they are in need of help but to your point Father Malone, he is on this mission, he has a a timer he needs to get this solved in a certain amount of time or else he will die and he just wants to get the friggin thing done, even as soon as he finds George Buckflower and it's just like, okay get the machine ready, President's dead, I'm coming out, and it's like, no 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 you still gotta look for him, it's like well fuck you, (laughs) (laughs) He really does not (laughs) want to be there. And as soon as he thinks the president's dead, it's just like, okay, yeah, mission's over. That's it.
6: I've grown up my whole life just loving that character. And I was trying to think, what was the moment? like, What was the minute where I just like, that's why. That's why I love him. And I kept coming back to that introduction because I think for me personally, that's why I wanted to know how it was for you guys. For me personally, every hero I had seen to that point was the non-flawed hero. It was the... The guy that's always going to do the right thing. I hadn't seen Dirty Harry by that point. So he's the guy who was going to do the right thing. He was always going to go out there. He's going to help the damsel in distress. And here's a guy who just felt more real, I guess, maybe f- real for the time, maybe in a grittier way and not necessarily in a moral code kind of way, but he was real for the time. He was doing what he needed to do. And it stuck with me because that felt more realistic than the Luke Skywalkers of the world.
0: If snake Plissken had been, put into the New York uh, penitentiary as a prisoner and he came across three guys assaulting a girl like that might have been a different scenario but here he's got a, a watch on his wrist counting down before his head explore, or brother is uh his arteries explode and he's on the mission so I think by the end of the movie, at least morally, he's redeemed. But I I totally agree with you. Here was a guy who seemed as real a hero for the first time in sort of a speculative fiction way that we had ever seen before.
2: Well, his second opportunity to save somebody, he actually does try to save them. When he's in chock full of nuts and all of the crazies are coming through, he does try to save season Hubley, and he seems distraught that he can't. We talked last week about uh, the whole idea of the – Night of the Living Dead being an influence on Assault on Precinct 13. And again, I can see this with all of these guys. I mean, it feels like they're just like coming out of everywhere. It's almost like, you know, Marion in that uh, The Well of the Souls with all the snakes coming out. It feels very similar to like, just like wherever you turn, these crazies are coming out and coming for him. So it, 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 definitely has that same that's why i made the joke about the chud at the beginning it it feels like it has that same kind of zombie-esque attack that we just saw last week it's a terrifying
0: scene and we get a couple of them with the sort of mob in new york and it's it's an excellent reminder that this is a whole new world like the last thing he was expecting was that sewer cover to pop off and people start flooding out into it just another measure of the, the, the sort of danger that he's constantly up against in here. And 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 once again, I, I mean, I, I know I keep harping on it, but it felt so real. It could have been done clumsily and not effectively. And, and here, those, those threats feel like they could take him out very easily.
6: Carpenter shot those early scenes almost like a horror movie. Even the score was so reminiscent of a horror movie.
2: When you get those moments of, like, jump scares, especially that, like... <laughs> Noise that he will do on the soundtrack <laughs> at the train, and the first time you see that guy who's knocking on the uh, the manhole covers, like the way that we do this, like really quick rack focus to him in the background. I was like, whoa, okay. It's like here's Snake sitting in this chair, and then we rack really quickly to this guy coming down the street, and it's just like, wow, okay, this seems like it could be dangerous just from the way that the focus changed. So very, very smart. And then, you know, even when we're introduced to Cabby, it's like, okay, who is this guy? You know, and I'm, uh, you know, I've seen Ernest Borgnine be evil before, so I don't know if he's going to be a helper or not. And so you're suspicious of every single person that you meet in here, much like Snake is, you know, you're really put into his shoes or boots in this case to feel suspicious of every single person that you meet. Especially Cabby. He's so over the
6: top. I mean, He just comes across as, that dude's going to murder you in your sleep. That's exactly what he comes across as. But you love him by the end. You just absolutely love him.
5: Hey, Snake, when would you get in? I didn't even know they caught you. (laughs) Oh, Snake Fliskin in my cab? (laughs) Wait till I tell Eddie.
0: (laughs) I figured that Cabby was not a prisoner at all. He was just a guy who refused to leave his cab in New York.
2: Yeah, what was Cabby's crime?
0: If you go find that Broadway
6: show, they actually have the lyrics. You can find them online. It's just like murder, death, kill. That's the entire song.
0: It's great. Shoot a cop with a gun. The Big Apple is plenty of fun.
2: I had heard uh, Deborah Hill was talking that it was originally supposed to be a Sondheim song. It was supposed to be, uh, I, I want to say she said, everything's coming of roses. And you can almost hear that when you listen to the song.
6: It's very close. Everyone's coming to New York. Did you guys get the, the timer? I got to ask about the timer. I meant to do it a minute ago. When you I, I, it.
2: I rewatched the movie, like the, the first 30 minutes right before I came down here so we could have this discussion. So now, do you know what I'm talking about though? Yeah. So <laughs> okay. I think the confusion comes. So they put the timer on his wrist and they set it for 23 hours. It's 2259 when it starts up. The, where the confusion comes in is it's not. 23 hours that he has, he has, I think they say something like 22. An, an hour before yeah, like the, it'll happen an hour before that timer goes off and there's this whole thing about like how the president has to actually be out a little bit earlier because he needs to get up to wherever to make this speech about nuclear fusion, I guess this weird MacGuffin of mm-hmm. the president's speech, but yeah I, I agree with you, it was a little confusing Tell him. Tell me what? That idea you had about turning the Gulf fire around 180
5: degrees and flying off to Canada. What did you do to me, asshole? My idea, Plissken. Something we've been fooling around with. Two microscopic capsules lodged in your arteries. They're already starting to dissolve. In 22 hours, the cores will completely dissolve. Inside the cores are a heat-sensing charge. Not a large explosive the size of a pinhead. Just big enough to open up both your arteries. I'd say you'd be dead in ten or fifteen. <laughs> Take them out
3: now. They're protected
6: by the cords. Fifteen minutes before the last hour's up, we can neutralize the charge with X rays.
0: The explosive charges that they've put into his neck cannot be irradiated until an hour before they're they're going to explode, right? So that's that clock. And then the other clock was just, I guess, the, the conference was going to be over.
6: Right. But but the this, I was telling Mike before we did the podcast, I'm like, this is the debate my friends and I had for years, literally years. I think I lost a friend over this deal. But it, when they put it, you know, he says 24 hours and then they put the watch on. He started at 23 and it's like 2259 when it actually starts. And then he says, you got 22 hours to get him out. And he's like, well, what, we talked about 24. And he's like, no, in 22 hours, the summit's over. He's got to be back in 22 hours. And you got to be back an hour before in order to neutralize the charges. Well, everything in the dialogue says 22 hours, but his clock says 22.59. So I'm like,
0: he was technically an hour late. I'm pretty sure he should have died. That was the debate. Oh, okay. Yeah, I guess I can see that. When he puts the watch on him, he says 22 hours, 59 minutes, 57 seconds.
6: Now he says, Lee Van Cleef says several times, you got 22 hours, 22 hours. He doesn't say 23 hours, which would have made more sense because you got, he didn't say 22 hours and 59 minutes. He just leaves it at 22 hours. It's, it's the weirdest thing. I'm sure it's just like a faux pas.
0: He may have repeated the 22 hours, but I, I know for certain when he puts the watch on him, he says 22 hours, 59 minutes, 57 seconds. And then plus, no, goes. he we talked he, about 24 I don't think. He,
6: he says 22 hours. He doesn't actually say all the minutes. He show They show it. They show it.
2: What I needed to do is put together a YouTube video all about this. Uh, maybe you can get Ryan Airy from Screen Crush to uh, host it for you. That would be pretty good. I'll, I'll get on that. Okay, good. And what I need is a poster image for the video with, like, Snake Pliskin and... Maybe Isaac Hayes in the background with, like, a big arrow pointing to Isaac Hayes and something circled. It doesn't matter what it is. Just circle something and then be like the shocking truth about Escape from New York.
6: This is perfect. I think, like, 100,000 hits. Easy. At
2: least. Easy. At least. And at the end,
6: no, nothing's resolved.
2: A yellow border around it would be good. That's what we think. Like and subscribe to the video <laughs> and comment below. <laughs> Hey guys, make sure you hit that bell so you're alerted with the next time we have a video, which is all about the timer of eight hours in Escape from LA. But we'll talk about that eventually. Unfortunately,
6: we are going to be on different sides of the fence on that one. Sadly, uh oh,
2: uh oh, (laughs) Uh -oh.
6: (laughs) we will be, we will be.
2: Oh, Oh man,
6: sometimes you can enjoy, I can enjoy things while acknowledging that's not great.
2: Well, we were on different sides when it came yeah. to uh, Assault from Precinct 13 remake and we didn't kill each other. So that's true. Sure. We'll live talking about him coming into New York City, talking about even his introduction, the introduction of each character that is very, very considered each time we need a, meet a new person, what they're going to bring to the story and then how they are introduced and where they fit into possibly his past or not. I just love the introductions of each of these characters and each of these characters is so well drawn, even though you just get the slightest information. Like I said, we don't know why cabbie is there. I think I kind of agree. He says that he's been driving cab for 30 years. And let's see by that time, because what the first title card comes up is 1988 about the crime rate, correct? And then we're set in 1997, so Cabby was driving well before 1988 when the crime rate skyrocketed. So I wouldn't be surprised, yeah, because otherwise he's going to have to get out of Manhattan, commit a crime, get back in, and then find his cab again. And we're already suspending a lot of belief or disbelief. Uh, You know what's interesting?
0: I read the screenplay last night. Evidently, the this movie takes place on October 23rd, 1997. It's a title card that they left off, but I thought that was interesting that they bothered to put it in there.
2: I like when they get that specific about things. I always like when there's that particular date. I always like the beginning of Psycho for that reason, that they give us date and time, that they're setting up like this is a weekend. I don't think it really matters that it's October 23rd in this world of Escape from New York, but it is nice that they would have a date because I appreciate being grounded like that.
6: I kind of wish it would have been October 30th since Nick Nick Castle wrote it.
2: Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Speaking of the like the script
0: and like adding in these little uh, elements, the opening sort of info dump, you know, the uh, the the Star Wars crawl in Escape from New York land where Jamie Lee Curtis lays out what this world is, it's so economical. I mean, it's just a couple of, you know, graphic images and her talking about them, but it feels really exciting and like I think it it throws you into the world really well, like from that to, like, the first shot of New York where we crane up through the, you know, from the wall, it's, I I, I don't know. I'm just gushing about the movie now.
2: (laughs) I totally agree, and I think maps are underrated. People might really get on my case about that, but there are certain times where I'm just like, you know, a map in this movie would probably do you well, and especially when it comes to, like, certain documentaries. Like, a friend of mine worked on a documentary, and it was about all of these groups of protesters of the Vietnam War and where they were in the United States. And I was just like, I think showing like where these people were on an actual map would probably help you out. And so having that map of Manhattan, and I know that test audiences didn't actually understand that Manhattan was an island. I understood that, but it was still nice that they're just like, yeah, and this is how we would cut it off. We would cut off these five bridges. They don't talk about the tunnels. That's okay. But we would cut off these five bridges and put up this wall, and there you go. And that we keep seeing that wall in different shots at the beginning. I that, it was really nice. And we're going to hear from Joe Alves later on and the production design on this movie, especially when it comes to this police force that they have, this very fascistic-looking police force, the use of the eagle emblem that they have throughout this whole thing. Very, very Nazi Germany to me. Even the way that they're hanging the flag from a uh, a bridge in the background at the beginning is very reminiscent to me of the Nazi banners. Rather than having the flag, you know, tilted ninety degrees, it's hanging downwards, which I thought was a really nice touch to say, like this isn't the United States that you're used to.
6: Just the idea, the concept of you're going to throw a prisoner in and they never get to come out. I mean, just that seems very Draconian. I mean, it's just so. Savage in such sort of savage idea that you would sit there and stick people in. They robbed a bank. Okay. He can't come out in five years or 10 years. No, he's going to be there forever. What I just that idea is very Nazi Germany. I would say
0: combating that. I think Carpenter did a really smart thing in having the faces of the government in this movie, other than sort of the bumbling president that we get is Lee (laughs) Van Cleef and Tom Atkins because. Uh Like, they are representations of this police state that, you know, who knows what's going on in the rest of America, but they seem at least like decent people in which, you know, we talked about this during Assault on Precinct 13, and I I think, you know, Carpenter would cast people that brought with them more than the script was asking of them. You look at Lee Van Cleef, and we've seen him be a total psychopath, but... You know, as this one character, he seems like really grounded and like, like I said, kind of a, a decent guy. Like he obviously does have respect for Pliskin that he's going to entrust him with this job, even if he thinks that he'll, you know, screw him over. Down to Ernest Borgnine, like all the cast, like through the entire movie, it just they all seem to have something going on that even if we're not explicitly told, we can infer.
6: So much of every character is inferred. I mean, even the main character really gets no backstory, but we feel like we know him. Cabbie, you feel like you know him. Brain, you feel like you get the gist of who he is. Maggie, even though she hardly has any lines, I kind of get the feel like I know who she is. I think that he did a really great job of showcasing characters without dumping exposition left and right. That's very hard to do, and I don't think he gets enough credit for that.
2: I even like this idea of... Donald Pleasance as being our president, and he makes no bones about covering his accent. He does not try to do it at all. And it's just like, okay, what world are we in where we can have a British guy as president? I kind of like that that we have we don't have that explanation we don't have well you know the thirty fifth amendment allowed it so that we could have foreign born presidents and this happened and this happened and you know Oceania has always been uh, at war with Europa and stuff it's just like no here's this guy and then we get to learn what a shit he is especially towards the end of the movie because we don't get a whole lot of him at the beginning we just have him like you know hey can you blast the door okay i'm going in the egg (laughs) and getting shot out kind of thing but there's not a lot of him until we get out of the prison and he's just like oh uh i really appreciate your sacrifice basically like go suck an egg snake
6: and carpenter said pleasance wrote a backstory for that and he said i'm not using it (laughs) that's pretty funny
0: it was the uh the american president and margaret thatcher had had a child Yep. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I can see that. I can see him being, uh, Thatcher and Reagan's baby. And it's a good thing to, like, think about, but
0: we don't need to be told at any point. Like, all the little asides, like, two Purple Hearts, Leningrad and Siberia. It's like, okay, well, I guess we were at war with Russia, and there were some major battles here and there. Texas Thunder. Like, oh, okay, (laughs) these guys grudgingly know each other from the war that is no longer uh, happening. And down to, you know, when the sort of moment between Brain and Snake Plissken, when he meets him, he's like Harold Hellman. You and I have history together and we can do it in just a couple of lines and convey so much. And if I can just say one thing I really love about that scene in particular, and I only noticed it recently, is when Snake finally comes in on Brain and like kicks his chair back and puts the gun up to him brain never wavers he never seems afraid of snake plissken at all which i really appreciate it because you, know, you know they would have done a bit of cowering or crying in another movie like everyone seems really solid and sure of themselves and i guess that's a carryover from assault on precinct 13 but good lord
3: harold hellman
4: snake harold how you been harold
3: glad you remember me
5: yeah man should remember his past Kansas City, four years ago, you ran out on me. You left me sitting there. You were late. We were buddies, Harold.
3: You, me, and Fresno, Bob. You know what they did to Bob? Hmm? You want to see him sprayed all over that map, baby? Where's the president? I swear to God, Snake, I don't know. Don't fuck with me. Why do you
5: want to know? I want him working for the man now
4: huh. I'll just beat it out of your squeeze. Mhm. Maggie doesn't know exactly where he is and unless you know exactly precisely where he
2: is you'll never find him. Yeah, it's like he's afraid of the duke a little bit. The way that he acts around Romero this whole like the, him bluffing and trying to get in to see the president but still he's he's kind of got a swagger, brings swagger in a little bit. And yeah, I like that he so often he's very much this kind of con artist as far as like you're going to need me to do this you're going to need me to do that he's always like proving himself like you can't kill me because x y and z and there's always a reason and i that's a great reason why they call him brain is because he's always thinking and always coming up with that next excuse of like oh you can't do that because of this and you need me around because of this you know who's going to make the gasoline for you who's going to do this for you who's going to do that it's me it's brain that i'm the only guy that can do all of this stuff
6: and in that respect Snake never once makes that plea that I can recall unless I'm I'm forgetting something I don't recall him ever making a plea to save his own life.
0: No, no, I not. don't think he does. he does. He just he does demand that they remove the
2: explosives immediately.
6: But he is not begging. He's just like, ah, "I want to get back, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you." Still wish he would have.
2: Yeah, I think that's the only promise he doesn't keep, right? Is <laughs> <Yeah>. not killing <laughs> Hawk. Much. Yeah. But at least and he it's explains it only because he's tired. too tired. He, it was
6: going to happen. If he would have had a nap, this movie would have ended completely different.
2: Well, he does get knocked out for a little while. And we we talked about this ticking clock, this literal ticking clock that they have in this. They've got those daylight scenes because this movie is so dark so often that the daylight scenes are almost a shock when they happen. And it kind of reminds me of of a movie that Carpenter made a few years prior was Halloween and this whole idea of – The scariest part of Halloween to me is when you see Michael Myers in the daytime, when he's hanging out by that laundry and you get to see him just standing outside of the house, just like, holy shit, because it's one thing to have a boogeyman at night, but to see the boogeyman during the daytime, that's a whole different thing. So having these daytime scenes I think they can be a little off-putting for some people, but for me, it's just like, yeah, no, this is its showing that you've got a full day to rescue the president, and it's also showing that when the sun comes up, these monsters that are in New York are not going away. They are still hanging out, and they still run the whole show. This is not I Am Legend. It's not like Anthony Zerby just disappears into the woodwork once the sun comes up, leaving the rest of the city for Neville to take charge of. No, they're there. The vampires are there full time. And they can wave down helicopters.
6: Their skill is waving down helicopters. Like, yeah, Jim, <laughs> that's you. That is you. Get that.
2: <laughs> and I do like that moment when you think that Cabby is, has turned on him, that when he runs away. But eventually he comes back and kind of saves the day, and I'm glad that he, uh, he's he got, like, the reaction for everything, which is just, you know, throw a Molotov cocktail. It's fine. I'm telling you, Molotov cocktails work. Anytime I had
1: a problem and I threw a Molotov cocktail, boom, right away, I had a different problem.
0: Speaking of character introductions, like as you said, it it they're all really solid and all really informative. From Pliskin to Hauk to Cabby to Brain, and then we've been hearing about him for the entire movie. Here is the spectacle of the Duke of New York with an amazing theme by Carpenter. Not a disappointment at all. Like uh, exceeding the expectations, and then he gets out of the car, and it's goddamn Isaac Hayes. Holy shit. And we'd all follow him. I
6: totally got it. If I was in New York, I'd be like, all right, I'm fo- Yeah. What do you want me to do? I'll wave helicopters down.
2: The outfit, the vehicle with all of the candelabras on there, yeah. the, 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 the chandelier. It's just like, oh, my God. And yeah, when he gives that little speech.
1: They sit in their best man. And when we roll down the 69th Street Bridge tomorrow, on our way to freedom... We're going to have our best man leading the way, from the neck up!
2: you're right, I'm right there with you, just like, yes, I will follow this man, because he is so fucking cool. And he's given the crowd the bread and circuses that they want. The whole idea of him shooting at the president, <laughs> I love that scene, I love that he's got that whole um, gladiatorial thing going on with, with uh, what's the guy's name, Slag, right? Yeah, uh, Slag. Just all of that, it just works so well, and I, one of my favorite fucking lines from this movie. It's so simple, but I sure do love it. The whole, what did I teach you? You are Duke of
5: New York. You're a number one.
1: I can't hear you.
5: You are the Duke of New York. You're a number one.
0: That gets paid back so well. I think this movie is a perfect movie, except for that scene, because I just think that briefcase would have come off his wrist as soon as he came out of the pod. (laughs) Even if they cut his hand off to get it. Like, why were they waiting around for it to see what's inside? They're not master
6: criminals. They didn't think too hard on this plan. They're just like, ah, keep him alive. Keep the briefcase around. Whatever. Make him say the words.
2: The president is useless to them at a certain point. Like, he's, he actually has, like, an expiration date on him, and they don't realize that. That's a lot of crap. This whole thing of, like, if he doesn't make it to the conference or that speech doesn't play, yeah, that's it. Get a new president, just like Snake would say.
6: (laughs) Just go pick a new one up.
2: Yeah. So, President of what? They have no idea that if they drive across the bridge 12 hours from now rather than 10 hours from now, it's not going to do them any good because the president doesn't have any value. They're going to get burned off the wall.
0: The other line I love in this movie from the Duke is when they've gone up to the roof of the World Trade Center and discovered that they're, they they are can't get away that way. And they come back in and look in the hood of the car and the guy pops out with the thing. It cuts over to Isaac Hayes. Car trouble. So casual. And another thing I like about that scene is so they've removed this steam engine from the car in this elaborate <laughs> ruse to, to like – and then the steam engine pays off and allows them to get away. Like, everything seems so considered in this movie. It's insane. It's very thought
6: out. I thought you were dead. I thought you were dead. Everybody that says that dies, which I think is hysterical.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I never realized that. Mm-hmm. I just thought that was a running gag, but I didn't realize that everybody that says that ends up dying. Whatever ends up happening to Cabby? He gets exploded in the car the, uh, when the car oh, is goes okay. apart. Boom. I remember the car splitting apart. I just, I would like to think that Cabby somehow made it out, but I guess that's too much.
6: <laughs> Blew him into the into the water. He swam away. He's fine. How's that? Yeah. Okay. Found it, there found you go. A
2: new cab. Found a new cab. Did he make it past the as He driving cab in like New Jersey now.
0: Hopefully, I want nothing but good for Cabby. He seemed like a decent sort. He's the only one in that audience really enjoying the show. He really was. He was like bopping in his seat, wasn't he? He was just like, yeah. Grinning ear to ear. He, he was having a great time at, uh, at the theater.
2: Father Malone, you mentioned reading the script. And if memory serves, there's a little bit more in that scene because Snake walks in and basically walks past the ticket taker and doesn't Yeah, like, the ticket taker and the manager come down and like, hey, you didn't pay to come in. <laughs> thing.
0: Yeah, it's uh, what it's two cans to come in, three cans to sleep, like four cans if you want to. Yeah, that's uh, mercifully cut. I guess we didn't need any more interaction with the uh, the people running the theater.
2: No, though it is nice that you see him sleeping there with all the cans next to him at the at, at the entrance of the theater.
0: Absolutely. So even if we don't get that scene and understand what that those means, there was a meaning behind it.
6: How lean is that script? I, I got to figure it's sub ninety
0: pages. Maybe 80. Cool. I mean, it's uh, it it's,
2: yeah, follows it's around there. very closely. I don't remember there being like, oh, my God, look at this amazing scene that didn't happen. You know, other than that opening, there were just like a couple things here and there that I can remember being slightly different. But it wasn't like, oh, yeah, there's a whole other character that got cut out of the movie at this point, And you learn more about blah, blah, blah. and Like, no, that stuff isn't there.
6: And I figured just because there's so little dialogue, it would be a very it would be a lean script, too, because it's just description for most of the,
0: the scene where um uh, Snake is gearing up, where Remy is sort of giving him the rundown of what's going on in the prison. I think that was much longer originally, like he he sort of plotted out where each section like this is controlled by Indians and this is controlled by them. And this is the homosexual area. And like, again, the less we know, uh, the the better the movie gets.
2: Yeah, I do like that little throwaway line when the uh, glider falls off of the World Trade Center and Brain's like, Goddamn Redskins. And it's just like, okay, yeah. All right. This is going back to that uh, Western movie we were talking about last week. You know, this is another, basically, it's a Western of, uh, you know, you got the Indians that are, are uh, ruining his plans.
0: They're savages, Mr.
2: President.
6: What'd you think of the cage match with Ox Baker?
2: Oh,
0: man. Just the sound of those bats hitting with the spikes in it. Holy God, what a great
2: sound. The sound design is fucking fantastic. And yeah, it sells so much of that fight. The sound design also, and we can come back to the fight, but the sound design is so crucial when it comes to those helicopters. Because yeah, we've got some real helicopters in there. Then we've got a lot of models of helicopters, you know, animation of helicopters. They did such a great job with the sound design. Man, the effects and everything, there's some moments where you've got, like, guards walking in front, and then the darkened New York skyline behind them. I don't know why I never really thought about it until today. I was just like, oh, yeah, there are little lights here and there, but Manhattan is black because there's no electricity going to them anymore. So you have to do everything With special effects, you can't just take a shot of the New York skyline, unless maybe it's during the day. But at night, no, it's going to be lit up like a Christmas tree, so you have to fake it and make everything paintings or mats or backdrops or whatever, and it just looks so nice.
6: It's a good way to mask the, the fact that it's shot in, you know what, East St. Louis, I think. It's a good way, a good way to mask that as well, because then you don't have so much prominence focused on the buildings that you know you, people would, would see otherwise. It might stand out to them otherwise. That's, that's another
0: benefit. If you did this movie today, like it would be easy to sort of recreate that skyline digitally, but you know that they would color it up too much. They would make it too bright just to show us the destruction, whereas it's just so scary to see the the New York
2: skyline completely blacked out. And this would have been, what, three, four years past the blackout? I think that would have been your only chance (laughs) – (laughs) to take photos of the New York skyline completely. Get in there, guys! And yeah, the idea of them shooting in St. Louis was really smart, especially, I didn't realize this until, again, I was listening to a commentary where they're talking about how the train station in St. Louis is modeled after the Grand Central Station. And at this point in St. Louis's history, they're not doing well either. So Joe Alves and his guys, they didn't have to – make the train station look shitty at all. They basically brought in some stuff and just set it up, but it was already decrepit. So, they they actually made it look better after they left than when they went in, because this was another pretty much abandoned building that they were taking over. That was a great description. They didn't have to make it shitty. It was already shitty. The gladiatorial combat, like... Now, if they had had like
0: a crazy budget, you know, it would have just been Madison Square Garden. I think even in the script, it's described as Madison Square Garden. And the fact that they, they didn't let that the deter them. I mean, that is the, that is the St. Louis train station, like the sort of main lobby that they just redressed to make it look like this gladiatorial arena. And you know that if, had they, again, if they had made this movie now, they, they wouldn't have cared if the CG was good or bad in making it look like Madison Square Garden. Whereas it feels more organic because they made it on a set.
2: Yeah, to hear some of those tricks that they did to tie sets together, that whole idea of going from Liberty Island, like the actual Liberty Island to Los Angeles, you know, with a going across a black and then back to light and that the cut is hidden in that black section. So smart. Beautiful.
0: And it makes you it it makes you sort of reconsider the geography because we know the Statue of Liberty is on an island. But clearly now you can walk into a giant expanse of concrete that they've built this wall up against.
2: Well, and it's got to have some sort of bridge because they've got a bus showing up on Liberty Island now. Again, I didn't need 10 minutes of explanation for that. I just give me Jamie Lee Curtis five minutes of faux computer animation that looks fucking brilliant for 1981 i'll take it sure
6: how many people are listening to this podcast and realizing for the first time that jamie lee curtis did that opening narration like what
0: yeah i i watched the movie for how many years i had no idea it was her
2: oh yeah (laughs) does she do all of those computer voices or is there a second woman in there because there's also the stay on the orange line thing the
0: stay on the orange line is still jamie lee curtis but the tracer test voice that's Deborah Hill.
2: I appreciated hearing Deborah Hill t- talking about some of the, uh, Uh, I can't remember if it was union problems or there was a guy who basically wasn't giving the production what they needed. And she was like, this was a really good time that I was a woman producer because I." she basically says that she tarted herself up. (laughs) 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 like She's like, I wore a a dress or a a blouse cut down to here and really short skirt. And yeah, the guy, uh, he agreed to what we wanted after that. I was like, oh, that's nice. nice. That's good. Good for you. Had so many talented people. We've talked about the talented people in front of the camera, but so many talented people behind the camera, you know, talked about Joe Elves, talked about Dean Cundy, but just all of these folks just coming together. I mean, Carpenter and his crew were just such a well-oiled machine.
0: One of the DVD extras is about the, the train robbery, or, you know, that that was supposed to start the movie. And they have commentary with Carpenter and and Kurt Russell. And Kurt Russell says like, yeah, at this point we, we were, had to move really fast and then the dolly broke down. And I remember you just taking the camera guy and putting him on a sound cart and rolling it. And it, so yeah, like, you know, this was a well oiled machine. Like, you know, they, they're all working at the top of their game and doing it so goddamned well. And we haven't even mentioned the music because, uh, or we have sort of tangentially, but like, to me, this is Carpenter's absolute best score. It is so evocative and propulsive and and fantastic. A couple of years ago, uh, Carpenter went out on tour where he performed all of his scores with a a live band. And he opened the concert here in Las Vegas with Escape from New York. And I swear to God, I left my body.
2: It was (laughs) so (laughs) incredible. It all comes together so well. And each of the different pieces of music just fit things so well. You mentioned the Duke of New York's theme. Oh, wow. When that starts coming up, and it's just so fucking funky. I mean, it's it's funky enough that Isaac Hayes is not out of place. He's the grandmaster of funk, and it's <laughs> appropriate that he is coming in with this music. It's funky and
0: menacing at the same time. <laughs> and it,
2: And you just know whoever's about to show
0: up is going to be the coolest person in the world.
2: To counter the cool score by Carpenter – And is it Alan Howarth also did the score on this one as well to counter that with bandstand boogie that you hear several times through. And it just, it works so well, especially that fucking ending. Just when Donald Pleasance finally gets the fucking egg on his face. Oh, I love the look on his face when he starts playing that tape, a fitting end to this, you know, mouthpiece of a, of a
0: president.
6: For for me, in terms of the score, I feel like this is his most complete work. And when I say that, I mean, there are at least four different genres, I think, thrown around here through the course of the film. And he hits every one of them. He's got the very early going science fiction theme. Then he's got a horror. And then he's got straightforward action. And then he's got the Duke, which is a lot, you know, it's a much more funkier vibe. All of that, plus whatever the hell that was at the end. Tie that all together. I mean, it's just like it's so complete, and it's it's very rare to to get such a complete score that's also distinctive. Which is probably why why Father Malone is saying that this is his best work, and and I agree with that. It's just because it's so complete. Like I love aspects of his other movies. Halloween theme is one of the best themes of all time. Like as a whole, this does so many different things and accomplishes all of them that I think it's the most impressive.
2: My wife and I have this running debate. I, I'm trying to remember what movie we were just watching the other day. And I made a reference to like a song that was in the movie. And she was just like, I don't listen to music that's in the movies. What are you talking about? And what? then. <laughs> I know. Well, we, we come from very different backgrounds. Well, this morning I'm getting ready to leave for work and I, I'm queuing up an audio commentary to listen to on the way. And it starts with the theme from Escape from New York. And she's just like, what is that? I know that. And I was just like, no, honey, you don't know the scores from movies. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I said, okay, try to guess what it was. And she actually guessed escape from New York. So I was nice. like, okay, see, so you do, you do listen to that's the
6: one with sexy Kurt Russell. I, I think we know why she knows that one. He <laughs> sure a lot.
2: Well, and she does like Jason Statham. So that's why I think I've seen ghosts of Mars more times than you guys have. That's, that's the only explanation.
6: I I like Jason Statham and I don't understand that aspect. I just don't there's better movies. Find them. Watch Crank again or something.
2: Crank, fucking the Transporter films, even the the second and third Transporter, sure I'll take it.
6: Yeah. <laughs> Back to the I was the fight with Ox Baker. You've you've heard the story from Kurt Russell right about that fight, I assume, but I don't know if people listening have. I want to say he asked Ox to take it easy on him. Yeah, he taps him on the groin. Like he he pats his He's told the story and it's great when he tells it is obviously it's his story, but he's basically he's getting his ass kicked in that cage because the guy isn't used to pulling punches where Kurt Russell has been an actor for years before this. And so he's conditioned for it. Ox Baker is not. (laughs) So he keeps connecting. And at one point he's just down. He just taps him on the on the groin and says, you got to take it easy. And it was fine after that. But I just I love that story. And people should seek it out if you can find it. But it's a great story to hear, too.
2: Any commentary where you have Carpenter and Russell together talking, I mean, it just, it's like, it's like what they are. They're old friends Mm -hmm. and you can almost hear like the cracking of beers when they're talking. It just feels like two buddies getting together and shooting the shit. There are times, yes, they will go way off topic when they're doing their commentaries, but it is just a pleasure to listen to these two guys talk no matter what movie it is. I highly encourage if, yeah, to your point, if there's anybody that hasn't heard the commentary tracks for The Thing, Escape from New York, um, Big Trouble, uh, Big Trouble in Little China. I mean, they are just, they're such a pleasure to partake in.
0: I, I yeah, I, the thing in particular seemed like, like really fun. It, it never, they never seem to skimp on information, but then they, they make you feel like you always hoped they were. While making these movies and uh, reassessing them. It's gone, McCready. Like hearing Kurt Russell do (laughs) Donald Moffat. Yes. (laughs) It's it's
2: pretty great. Yeah, I mentioned before that this was the first action role from Kurt Russell. And the powers that be did not want him being the main guy. I think they were talking about, what, Charles Bronson for a while? There were some other... You know, names get bandied about all the time, but it was, Tommy Lee Jones, um, I think, was one.
0: Yeah, oh,
6: Tommy yeah. Lee Jones was another one. Yep.
2: The relationship that Russell and Carpenter had from the Elvis movie that they made a few years prior, and here he's sticking up for his buddy. He's like, no, no, he's going to be the perfect guy. And yeah, like to this point, like okay, yes, he was in Used Cars where he's a scoundrel, but he's fucking hilarious. And before that, it's just like you know, he's coming from Disney. This Disney background. Yeah. He's the computer that wore tennis shoes. He's all of these great Disney roles throughout the years. He had never played this type of role. And after this, I mean, the guy can play anything, you know, and he, and he has played anything. He's played so many different type of types of characters. And uh, yeah, I just absolutely love that they took this chance on him that that carpenter was like, no, no, this is my guy and started this, you know, beautiful relationship of kurt russell being the tough guy now for carpenter to direct or flipping it on its head and being absolutely ridiculous in something like big trouble in little china which i also appreciated so much
0: in that commentary about the the train robbery sequence kurt russell says that was the first sequence they shot for the movie and after the third take he said john carpenter came over to me and said this fucking character is gonna work <laughs>
6: Oh god! There was another story. Uh, I don't know if it was a commentary or if it was just an interview where he said he was actually walking down. He was just walking down St. Louis, and he just went down the wrong street, or something. He had to carry his gear to go to set, and he came across actual an actual street ga- st- uh, street gang or people that seemed like they would be in a street gang, and they looked concerned. And that's that's what you're talking about, right? Like that scene.
0: Uh, no, no, no. Actually, it was, it was during the, um, uh, the, the aborted opening scene during the, when they were filming in the train station. He said, like, they did three takes of him, like, uh, uh sitting down on the train, just, you know, throwing a couple of lines of dialogue. And then he realized that it was going to work as a character. But yeah, I have heard that story before where those guys were like, Hey, take it easy, man. And like, yeah, once take it easy. <laughs> and speaking,
6: speaking of the longevity of Kurt Russell, this is the part that I love. And I can probably talk about the guy for about three more hours if you got time. My, my kids are, are adults now. I had kids really young. And so my kids are now adults and I've been around them and their friends. And they're watching movies and whatnot. And their friends and them, not just them, because I forced them to watch Kurt Russell movies at a young age, but even their friends know who Kurt Russell is. They, they love Kurt Russell and they can't see him as anything but the badass that he ended up being in all these movies. So it's, it's crazy to even think there was a time when no one could see Kurt Russell as doing these characters.
0: Yeah, it says something about the, 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 the powers that be that uh, how limited their view always seems to be, <laughs> you know, like all they knew Kurt Russell was from, you know, a series of Disney films and commercials and stuff. And he's like, well, that's just he's not he, he can't be this guy like not trusting his range as an actor. Because as you said, Mike, he's played everything up to this point and he does it very well. He's a very skilled actor. And th- there's a scene once the, the chock full of nuts girls get pulled down and he's making his escape. Like you can see it's Kurt Russell smashing out a window, reaching out, pulling himself up onto a, uh, a fireplace or not a fireplace, but a fire escape. And then sort of climbing further up. And and all I could think is like, you know, we do have these distinctions of like action movie guys and like regular actors
2: but here's a guy who can do both and clearly can do it so well. I love this whole thing of how <laughs> he's like, yeah, John, when you asked me to be in this role, I, I was really glad that you thought I could lose 25 pounds <laughs> so quickly. <laughs> and that he, I mean, he looks like a badass. Just the, the, the snakeskin pants that he's got, that really tight top that he's got going on there. I mean, he looks just awesome in this movie. Just. Such a such a such an imposing character. The eye patch, the beard, the hair, just all of it comes together so well for the whole package with this guy.
6: And the eye patch was him. That wasn't the script.
2: Well, in the prequel, we'll get to find out how he loses the eye. That was supposed to be a thing. They had, like, you know, like a
0: planned series where they were going to – this was recently, like within the past ten years, where – they wanted to do a television series telling of his earlier exploits including the story of how he lost his eye
2: oh, oh god. god please I don't, don't ever it. i don't need it i don't
0: need it i'm want
6: so glad it. was not this like to know. the gerard butler <laughs> was this like the gerard butler version
2: american mike
6: i've never heard that is that that's a real thing they were going to do a tv prequel i haven't heard that one
2: mm-hmm. yeah even in the 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 commentary that Deborah was doing with joe it was uh, i think theirs was recorded, I want to say, theirs was definitely recorded post Escape from L.A., as opposed to the commentary that I think Russell and Carpenter did, which I think was pre Escape from L.A. But yeah, she's like, oh, can you believe in this day and age where we can make Escape from L.A.? And we've got a TV series and this and that. And I'm like, TV series? Okay. But yeah, there have been all these talks. And we'll talk Mm -hmm. about some of the Escape From's that might have been, but did not happen. And that kind of happened that shouldn't have. Father Malone, you mentioned the snake tattoo, I believe. Yeah, the, the, the
0: slightly looks like a question mark. In fact, I had friends growing up who were convinced that it was a question mark because we never really see it in, in detail. But as far as I'm concerned, like, that's a good thing because this guy, what's going on with him? <laughs> you know, like it's, a, it, it's, it's like down to that last detail with the snake, like coming out of his pants, first of all. And secondly, like registering a, a giant uh, a question, question mark on who he is
2: and what his motives are. Yeah. I've always been curious what's going on below the waist there. Like does this, this <laughs> does, does, does the snake tail end someplace that we're thinking of. Is that tattooed as well? Or how but does please that Please don't make
0: a prequel about the snake getting his tattoo? Oh, they will. Oh, they will. That would be a part of, You know that would be like the, the
6: season finale if they had a series on it. They'd be like, this week we find out how Snake gets his tattoo.
2: Well, the thing is what they're going to do is it's going to be like Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. It all happened on the same day. He got yes. the tattoo. Oh He yeah. lost the eye. He used to speak in a much higher voice. Just all of these things all happen at the same time and within like an hour or so. Yes, on his way to Stalingrad.
6: Of course, of course. I mean, I've heard remakes over and over, but prequel, I haven't heard. I haven't heard that one. So that's that's interesting. Oof! You got to talk about the bridge, the ending. You know, where they they get the president back, and he comes back in to the fold because he escapes after he does beat that big ass mofo. He does escape, and that affords him the opportunity to meet back up with his crew. That's a great escape.
0: Yeah, I think that whole sequence, the sixty-nine street bridge. Watching it even again today, it's it's it made me feel breathless, particularly when that music comes on, which is so sort of propulsive and mirroring the clock like ticking down. It's so uh, like it's eerie at the start and then, you know, sort of hard hitting by the end. But what a great scene overall.
6: And, and watching them all get just basically get picked off one by one before they get to that wall. And also you get that cutaway with Hawks. Was that, I think that was the part where Hawks got that giant ass walkie talkie or foam, whatever the hell that thing was. And I'm like, God, this is the eighties trying to be later in life. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I love that they all die so quickly. It's just like one after another, after another, after another, and Snake and the president are the only ones that make it to the wall. And when the rope stops pulling him up, I'm just like, you got to be fucking kidding me. Like, my heart catches in my throat. I'm just like, what? No, don't, you know, are they going to fuck him over? What's going on? But no, it's so that the president can get his dick wet and start screaming, you know, you are the Duke of New York and start shooting up shit with a machine gun like he's some sort of tough guy.
6: I get it though. I I do. I I understand where he's coming from. He's had to wear a wig. He's had to sit there and you know just live this horrible, tortured prisoner of war life, which uh, I guess Donald Pleasance really was. Which uh, that was a fun fact I did not know. And for my fun, I mean, interesting. I didn't know that he was. But that was a that's a great scene. I love that scene when he just tears him apart from the wall.
0: You know that the scene where he pulls the wig off. That when Brain comes in and effectively steals the president. That's Romero's death scene. Man, oh man, he just, he just, right to the end, like, there's no, there's no shortage of great choices Frank Doubleday is making, where he's effectively crying as he's sl- slinking to the ground. Oh my God. Or like, uh, uh, let me praise Doubleday even more. Like, when they're at the train scene, and, uh, this is where they coldcock cock Snake Plissken, when Romero comes off the train, he, like, swings out, and then, like, puts his hand up, like, he's, like, looking in the distance, like, very presentational before he pulls his shirt open further and saunters away, throwing an accusatory finger back at brain. Oh my God.
2: Uh, I want, if they're going to make a movie, make it about Romero. I love that. That he's doing this thing, which, you know, like before horror directors do this whole thing, especially of like naming characters after other horror directors, but then we've got Romero and Dr. Cronenberg. I, I even like the Dr. Cronenberg character so much. John Strobel, this whole thing of him, very reluctantly putting the stuff inside of snake and then being like, tell him." And it's like, Oh, that's nice. Like they were, he was supposed to keep that on the down low, I think, because of the way that Hawk, when he's coming in, is like, Oh yeah, we're going to give you a vaccine and talks about how, you know, disease ridden New York is. I can't imagine that. But, and then uh, Romero kind of turns the tables on him. It's just like, no, you gotta tell him. You're know, like, I don't feel, it's like, he doesn't say this, but you can read his mind of like, I don't ethically feel good about doing what I just did.
0: Yeah. And I mentioned earlier, like, you know, with Hauk and Remy and, and Cronenberg as well, we do get these glimpses of there are decent people on both sides. Like, you know, there are people that end up helping him in the prison for whatever their reason is that, you know, that are, you know, doing the right thing. And now we've got, Perfectly personified by Cronenberg, who does not clearly feel <laughs> good about this at all, like, you know, trying to do the right thing. So it isn't as like monolithic as like, you know, the fascist state that we're fighting against. Like there's nuance
2: throughout this entire script. I think if Cabby took them to the wall, got everybody there safe and sound, that he would have stayed behind him and been like, have a good night, Snake. I'll, totally. I'll be here if you ever need me. You <laughs> know, I, I don't it. see him leaving New York.
0: Definitely not.
6: Speaking of not leaving, I, I thought Maggie's turnabout to go back and, and basically face the Duke was a great moment. And also, I, it was a very important moment. Like, Adrienne Barbeau is just one of those actors that I feel is eternally underrated. I just, I always have. I just feel like she was, she was great and deserved a lot more of a career than she ended up getting, but she's, she's had a long standing career. But in terms of, of that particular role, it initially starts where it's almost like she's a gift, right? I mean, she's essentially a gift for brain. So it comes across like maybe she really has no feelings for him. Maybe she's just, you know, a, a, I don't want to say a prostitute, but essentially that. But as you, as you, she plays the role and she has hardly any dialogue at all, she delivers so much more to the part than is ever on the page, I would assume. I mean, I didn't read the script, you did. But based on her what dialogue she does have and what's that, she doesn't have a whole lot of dialogue. So she has to do everything a lot with facial um, gestures and whatnot. And that end, when it's finally firmly understood, she cares about brain and that just really broke her. I think that's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful moment that we don't talk about enough. when We're talking about movies like this.
0: Yeah, it's heartbreaking. What like her look, and she can't fathom the idea that brain is gone, and is and, and and sort of gleefully like meets her end. You know, like even if she's not going to hit him, she's she's doing it in the service of the guy she loved.
2: She's that strong female character that we were talking about last week. You know, she is lay from the police station. She's just like. Basically, it's like if Lei and Napoleon had gotten together, like this is her bad boy and he ends up dying and then she has to defend him. I just, yeah, I love that. I love that. She, she's not just brain squeeze that she is so much more. And cynical to boot, Your Pliskin, like,
0: this is it? This is what we've been hearing about? <laughs> I, love I love that delivery. That was so good. Oh, she's and, so and you know, the, the sort of running joke of I heard you were dead, like, everyone sort of makes a presentation out of it except her. She kind of throws it away as she's just leading him to brain, like,
2: heard you were dead. And, yeah, I absolutely love the end of this movie, like I talked about, with the, the look on Donald Pleasant's face and just Snake walking away pulling the tape out of the cassette. Oh, it's so good. And just that he wins. He ends up winning. Even though so many people died, he ends up winning. And at the end of the day, that's all we can really hope for is that he's going to win.
6: Do you feel like if the president would have answered the question that when Snake is basically questioning him and he's like, hey, what do you think about the other people that lost their lives for you? If he would have answered it in a more empathetic way, that he would have given him the correct tape?
2: I think so.
0: I think so, too. I uh, I want to
5: thank you. Anything you want, you, you just name it.
3: Just a moment of your time.
0: Three minutes, sir. Uh, yes?
5: We did get you out.
3: A lot of people died in the process. I just wondered how you felt about it.
5: Well, I, <clears throat> I want to thank them. Uh, this nation appreciates their sacrifices. Uh, look um
0: uh, uh,
5: I'm on the air in uh, two and a half minutes. Yes, sir.
0: Yeah, I love that we even get that moment where any other action film he would have said some smart ass thing and just wandered away, but here he's you know looking for a deeper me- meaning, and like, was this all worth it? and clearly it wasn't because this guy doesn't give a shit about anything.
2: I like in the uh because they continued the story in the comic books, and I like that they have um uh impeached. The Donald Blessings character after the fiasco that happened. Oh, really? <laughs> With the tape. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty nice. Yeah. The comics are, and we'll maybe talk about this a little bit more in the second half of the show. The comics are interesting because they revisit some things. They put them on new paths in other ways. There's at least like two runs of things. There's like escape from New York, which is like a four volume um series, and then it's like Escape from Florida, Escape from Leningrad, Escape from... I can't remember the other two. Uh Each one has a different theme going on. And then there was another one which was more of a continuation. I mean, they're both kind of continuations, but I'm trying to remember what that one was called. That one was from 97. The other one was from the early 2000s. And then yeah, I was looking, and um the TV series was supposed to be... I think they said 100 episodes? Uh... Plans for a 100-episode series were proposed by Russell Carpenter and Deborah Hill in the early 2000s. All three would have served as executive producers, but Russell wasn't expected to reprise his role as Snake. Unfortunately, the proposed series was turned down by every major network. This is back when we still had networks, uh, because it was <laughs> supposedly too dark and bleak. So it sounds like it would have been perfect for Netflix, right? Yeah, yep, right do it again. Now. Sure.
6: Do it. Get that deal one aspect with the ending that I have always appreciated was that you get a little bit more insight into the character, like how he negotiates his life at the end, because at the very beginning when he's dealing with Hawk, he's call me snake. You know, when he's entertaining the idea of actually negotiating with him and working with him and what's the deal, the whole thing. But at the end, when he realizes you're a piece of shit, you're an asshole, I don't want anything to do with you. It switches to Pliskin, And I, and I just, I love that. You have, and he does the same thing in Escape from L.A., which is, you know, essentially a remake, but whatever. Um, I, I love that little minor dialogue anecdote. I just thought that was a great little touch that most writers wouldn't even think of. Just very clever.
0: And yeah, a circularity, because his first line is, call me Snake. And his last line is, call me Plissken. The name's Plissken. The name's Plissken.
2: All right, guys, we're going to take a break and play a trio of interviews. First up, we're going to hear from the co-screenwriter of Escape from New York, Nick Castle. After that, we'll hear from Maggie herself, Adrian Barbeau. And last but not least, we will hear from production designer Joe Alves. And we'll be back with all of that right after these brief messages. Now on digital, Sean Patrick Flannery stars in the action-packed thriller Assault on VA 33. Army veteran Jason Hill is visiting his VA hospital when terrorists infiltrate the building and take hostages. Outnumbered, Hill finds that he is now the last line of defense against the armed insurgents and must take back the building and save his wife before it's too late. Bring home the action and buy or rent assault on VA-33 on digital tonight. Rated R from Paramount Pictures.
1: Dark Destinations is a travelogue podcast unlike any other. Cities and towns distinguished by their oddity and the fact that they don't exist. Join us at Dark Destinations, where we explore the most infamous locations to be found in fiction. From Arkham to Zaira and every point in between, we risk life, limb, and our sanity for your listening pleasure. Dark Destinations can be found at FatherMalone.com and on iTunes.
6: You obviously love podcasts, but are you also a fan of movies and television? Do you want to listen to a show that reviews entertainment honestly and casts pretentiousness to the wind? That debates both film and TV topics in a fun, good-spirited way while still getting to the heart of why we all love them so much? Then don't miss the award-winning weekly podcast, The Hollywood Outsider, now available on your favorite podcast app or at thehollywoodoutsider.com.
2: Now on digital, Natasha Henstridge and Kosis Mandalore star in this action-packed thriller that will shock you at every turn. When DEA agents are ambushed by Sicarios in a fatal shootout, the survivors must play a deadly game of cat and mouse to live through the night. Buy or rent Night of the Sicario tonight. Rated R from Paramount Pictures. Where'd you grow up and how'd you decide to become a filmmaker?
3: Uh, I grew up in Los Angeles. My father uh, was in the motion picture industry. He moved from New York to uh, Los Angeles in the 30s. He was a tap dancer in vaudeville and then went on to choreograph acts in New York. And then, as they say, brought his talents to Los Angeles. Then he became a very famous choreographer, worked with a lot of the greats, Judy Garland, Fred Astaire, Gene Kelly, a lot of movies. I. I would go on the sets with him and you know, so I was very much influenced by his career and uh, he went on to TV and when, you know, I would go with him to uh, this, uh, those sets, things like that. I went to USC film school based on my interest in general and film and TV. And that's how it all started. My dad's best friends were also uh, in show business as well. And my godfather was married to Betty Hutton and then divorced her and, Married Patty Page, you know, so there was a lot of uh, characters running around the house, and my dad, you uh, had some famous guests over at the house, so uh, that was kind of as part of the the world as well. When did you go to USC? What year was that? Sixty-eight, yeah, something like that. Yeah, it was. Yeah, that's true. It's, it's actually the year my father passed away. A friend of mine got in first, and you know, suggested I go and. We started doing these little Super 8 movies, and uh, then um, got on. Got, then I decided because I was not in school at that point, uh, but just working with him on his projects, and then uh, wound up going that, that fall, I believe. Can you tell me how
2: the resurrection of Bronco Billy
3: came about? Sure. Actually, that same person that I was just referring to, John Wagenknecher, was uh, uh, the producer on the on the on the short. It was his idea when we became kind of in you know, our senior project to try to get what he would, he's considered, you know, like a super team, you know, and that included John, myself, himself, and uh, Jim Rocos who wound up directing that uh, we kind of came together and just threw out ideas. Uh, there wasn't a script or an idea to begin with. I think the reason Jim wound up being the director is he had kind of a notion, I mean, you know, all kind of filled in the gaps. I was the director of photography. John was the, et- John Carpenter was the editor. Uh, Jim was like, like I said, the, dir- uh, the director and John, uh, Longenecker, the producer. And, you know, it's, it's one of those student films that didn't, you know, it, it wasn't as clearly delineated in <laughs> sometime to, uh, to the detriment of the, uh, tenor of the, uh, production itself. But in any case, uh, you know, who was in charge? <laughs> it was pretty interesting that it all came about. It's, uh, the producer also was instrumental in uh, getting Johnny Crawford involved because he was a friend from before that uh, project, and his dad was a uh, was a casting director mainly for TV uh, and commercials. So we were able to get some good second leads and things like that. John uh, also knew uh, Chris Harmon, who uh, was um, uh, who played the the, the female lead. And, you know, we shot it, I think, uh, I forget, in the spring. And John then, uh, Longenecker, again, was uh, really pivotal in taking the movie and forcing it basically into a position to be looked at by, the, by, you know, the Academy. The school itself didn't think much of it, I guess, at least didn't put it on their priority list to push it for Academy consideration. John did that on his own and raised the money. Lo and behold, there it was, and we won the award was that your
2: your first time working with John Carpenter or had you done student films with him?
3: Might have been the first time we worked together on a project. You know, we were also on uh you know, we we went through our various classes together doing super 8 movies which were all done by each individual person. Then we split up into three-person crews in our kind of sophomore year. I wasn't on his team, but you know, we were all very close and that class and did a lot of work in the sense of you know talking about critiquing and suggesting ideas for other for people uh, that that we knew and worked with. Uh, but that indeed would be the first real credited picture I worked with John. On.
2: So what happens after you graduate?
3: Before we graduated, John started Dark Star there at USC Film School as a short, and uh, I worked with him and Daniel O'Bannon as basically, you know, a, an assistant. You know, it's just they needed arms and legs and people to help do things. I didn't have much of a creative input in that, but I had fun with them, and uh, they did that. And then, lo and behold, again, uh, John, you need one person in that group to have some kind of ambition and a sense of uh, how to take their step, first steps out of that world and into the real world of motion pictures, and he had a pretty good sense of that. And so uh, he got someone to give him some more money to make it into a feature. And we went off and did some more work. And my claim to fame on that one really is that I sat behind the beach ball monster, the thing that looked like a beach ball that was painted like a tomato and kind of gave it some life. My first foray in doing uh, behind the scenes or behind the plastic work.
2: When does Escape from New York come into your orbit?
3: John actually just called me out of the blue one day. He had already done a couple movies, including Halloween of course. So, you know, we, we, we kept in touch and, you know, I would show him what I was doing in terms of screenplays and things like that. And always interested in what he was up to, of course, because he had, he got off to such a, a fast start for that particular picture. He just called me up and said, what are you doing? You know, I need someone to help me on this project. You know, I just am kind of burnt out just doing these other movies and I really need someone to bounce off ideas. And I said, I'd love to. So he was very gracious and generous. In terms of uh, including me in that project, he had written the script right out of film school. was my um, memory of it, and it really was I think his first screenplay. And he just put it in the drawer when he got other things going. And then when uh, when he finished whatever it was, the fog or something, you, you know, one of the companies said, "Well, what else do you got?" And he pulled it out and said, "This is the idea," and they loved it. And, but it, you know, it needed quite a bit of work. So that's what. It, John asked me to do, come over his house until we kind of marched through the whole script, figured out what needed to be worked on and what needed to change, what was good, what was not good, and uh, get it into a fighting shape, you know? That's what we did. I just, we lived very close to each other. Both of us were in Laurel Canyon in Los Angeles, blocks away. we still had to drive, but I'd just go over there. We'd sit around his, his pool or his living room and, you know, toss out ideas. And he was very much the hands-on person. Now he's the one that made the uh, took the ideas and you know and put them into script form.
2: What was that early version
3: like? Do you remember? I don't really. Uh, I would be guessing now. I don't have a clear image of it. I know it. It just. I know what we added to it was. Is we just took. You know the the concept of being in New York itself wasn't as utilized as it should be and what it was eventually used is you know let's use some of the iconic images and what you do in New York and let let his journey kind of go like a tourist would do in in New York uh, going to a show going to that you know going to Madison Square Garden you know what is it going with going in a ride with a taxi driver you know anything that was iconic was not necessarily thought in those terms uh, uh in the in the first the draft, as I recall. And that's what we brought to the next thing. And, and also a little bit more humor, I think. John's funny, too, by the way. And that's not just me that would add some humor to this thing, but it's that's probably part of uh, my influence as well.
2: I read an earlier draft, and I've seen the, the scene that was shot as far as that uh, robbery at the beginning. When was the decision made to scrap that?
3: You know, I don't know. I, I wasn't there when they shot that. So that'd be a, a John question. I really don't uh, no, that was—I don't even remember it being in my draft, frankly. I oh, oh, and uh, not sure actually.
2: Was the character of Snake Plissken pretty much the way that he ended up being in those early drafts that you worked on?
3: I think so. You know that that was pretty much uh, a uh, part of the charm of the original idea was that kind of gruff character. We probably added even a little bit more nihilism to his character. We went on. And of course, you know, Kirk is the one that really brought his own interpretation of that, kind of a, an Eastwood kind of character, and uh, gave it that, that physicality. Yeah, I, I, I think uh, in general I, I would say that, that that's where that character was. The character's name actually was taken, Plissken, Snake as a matter of fact, was uh, borrowed, I suppose you could say, from a friend of ours, a, a, another student from USC who John, remembered, had talked to us about our old high school chum, whose name was Pliskin, and he called himself the Snake. <laughs> it actually, he just, that just stuck in John's mind, I suppose, and he said, what a great name for this.
2: So what were you doing while they were shooting Escape from New York?
3: I was here for most of, if not all, of the Los Angeles uh, shoot. And when they went to New York to do the, the bit around the Statue of Liberty, I was there, too. So, I, you know, like I did with Halloween, I asked John, you know, would he mind if I just hung around and be part of the, basically part of the crew? And, you know, if I had come up with any ideas or spot something, you know, while we're shooting, just, you know, throw in an idea here or there. But mainly just to be, again, to kind of immerse myself in that process since I, I wanted to be a director myself. So it's a, it was a rich experience. But in general, I mean, I didn't do anything in St. Louis. I didn't go there. But everything that was done in L.A., I think I was here for. And then I was in at one of the scenes, actually, playing the piano at the uh, Wiltern or whatever that is, theater in Los Angeles. That song was, Deborah had uh, thought she had got the rights to Everything's Coming Up Roses, you know, from Gypsy. And that's what we sang there and then afterwards after it was shot and finished and edited she went "Uh oh, oh. <laughs> i do we don't have it can you and so she asked me if i would rewrite it in the kind of meter and even that there was any way i could try to make it look like we weren't it was the lip sync wouldn't look too weird so that's when i uh, i wrote the uh the new song that was it's kind of almost a parody of that song but it's uh that was what Deborah asked me to do which i i wound up doing in post-production what was it
2: like working with deborah hill
3: she was just such a great she's a great producer because she's a real rooter you know she was like a, for the for the film very optimistic you know and she also was a you know it was uh you know I, di- I didn't work with her in the capacity as the line producer work that she had done but i always heard really good things about that that's Sometimes that could be a tough job because you have to say no to a lot of people and you have to, you know, bargain with people and things like that. It's a, uh, that's a toughie. But she, she seemed to do that very well and had a good rapport with the crew. I think all the crew loved her. And, of course, she was um, just very, very, very smart and had, uh, I'm sure, worked with John even after their relationship, personal relationship, ended they, they still had a good, long friendship.
2: I know you've probably been asked this a thousand times. So pardon me for being a thousand and one. How did you end up being the shape in Halloween?
3: I have answered that a million times, but, but not everyone knows. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Again, uh, knowing John, uh, John was uh, shooting the movie in Los Angeles. Uh, we're still close friends uh, after film school. One of the areas they were shooting in was uh, and said in, in doing some pre-production work was basically near our neighborhood in Hollywood. And uh, I went down to the set just to check it out and say hi. And I said, hey, John, what if I just hung around while you guys shot? This is, uh, you know, I just wanted to see if that was okay with him. And, you know, again, for the reasons uh, I said before, which was to, you know, to kind of demystify the experience so that I'd have something under my belt when I got to direct myself. And so he said, "Fine." And he said, "Well, I got an idea. Why don't you be this guy, the killer? You put on the mask and you walk around. And here, the you he, you have to be here anyhow. And then that's one other last person I have to cast." <laughs> and I said, "Okay." It was really off-handed, and of course, it's hilarious because I, it's you know, in my retirement, that's basically what I've been doing: <laughs> is being the for a lot of fans, and you know, writing autographs and going to some of these crazy horror conventions, having a great—it's a remarkable circumstance to have done that so many years ago, just on a whim, and then it to turn out to be this iconic horror character. It's just—it's just crazy.
2: Did I read that you came back
3: and and did that in the the 2018 film? Yeah, I did a cameo in that. Uh, and, uh, actually another cameo and the, the next one that's coming out too, they kind of, they made me kind of a mascot <laughs> uh, and it's fun, you know, and the fans love it. You know, they, they, they think it's hilarious that, you know, Nick Castle is still giving his okay to these new films and being part of them. I, so I think it, it worked out for everybody. So yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun and, and, and also meeting a lot of nice people, including the director there, David Gordon Green is real talented, a good guy. I have a little bit of input too on those things. He'll say he sends me the script, and I come up with some ideas, which you will you know, he'll take to heart. So it's fun to be uh, to, to stretch myself a little bit again in that world.
2: I am a big fan of movies of the ilk of Prey TV, and I do remember watching Pray TV back in the early '80s. How did you get involved with that one?
3: I had a uh, next-door neighbor who was friends with the, the person that would eventually be the the director, uh, Rick Friedberg, and he was looking around for some comedy writers. I'm not sure his relationship with uh, Dick uh, Chudnow, but Dick was part of the team that brought um, Kentucky Fried Theater, uh, Wisconsin, to Los Angeles to, uh, with the Zuckers. Of course, they went on to do Airplane and things like that. Dick uh, uh, wound up moving away from that team and he got on board. So we, three of us, uh, got together and kind of, Rick had an idea about doing a, a comedy based on religious television. We, and we we spent quite a bit of time going through a number of drafts. And then Rick went out and found some dough to do it. Two of them are very close friends still. So it was a wonderful experience. And again, uh, more importantly, I, I made... <laughs> Chad now, especially, is like my best friend now. And he lives in the... Bel- he went on to do comedy a group called comedy sports it's an improv group that uh, has chapters all around the country so, and in london too i think made a great living at, at that and now is retired and trying to stay out of i just got his COVID shot so good hope he'll, he'll live a few more years i can see
2: him again tell me how was that first experience for you directing when you ended up
3: doing tag well, it, you know, it was great. And another, you know, it's it's you just have to keep your eyes open when you're trying to make that transition from film school to, you know, movies, the film movies. Well, I guess they're real movies when you do film school, too. But the pain type that was, uh, again, from a, a contact with a neighbor who basically said uh, they have an idea and they want to know if you'll write a uh, treatment that they could go get some money for. And I said, no, <laughs> I said, I'm not going to do that again. <laughs> I do that for free all the time. He says, well, okay, well, what if you uh, attach yourself as director? And I went, ah, shit, okay. Okay, I'll give it a shot. And so it was just a magazine article about what was really going on on co- college campuses with this kind of dart game that was being played as a kind of a James Bond spy game. A live action game uh, on the campuses, which God forbid would ever happen now. <laughs> Can you imagine people running around with the campus? That would not happen anymore. In any case, that was big. It was a big deal, you know, on some campuses. In any case, so yeah, it seemed like, yeah, let's come up with an idea. And the obvious one to me was doing where one guy goes crazy and starts really shooting people. You know, that's an you know, interesting actually thing about that was the producers were very impressed with the fact that I had done Escape from New York and that I was a writer on that. That really gave me some credibility as a director because, of course, you know, I didn't have anything but a few shorts that weren't particularly applicable to what they were looking for. And I got John to write me a, uh, a letter saying this guy'd be a great director, <laughs> and, and I, of course I wrote it. He, I, <laughs> I wrote it, and he signed it. We we sent that in, and uh, again it's just like out of the blue. We you know the guy had I don't know, whatever it was a million bucks to do it, and that's how it started. And then uh, we you know it, it was pretty much a straight ahead uh, production with uh, something I would wind up doing doctor show, casting, and finding locations. We shot it mainly on the UCLA campus, which I was very familiar with because I used to live near it. Linda Hamilton's first feature, Bobby Carradine, was great in it. And the cameraman was an interesting casting in a sense. He was from France, and he had done some great work. Uh, His reel was so much further advanced than anybody that I was able to afford or get. And uh, I thought he was really instrumental in making the film interesting, and the look was very good. And then the other thing I thought that was a real lucky break was getting Craig Sasson, who's the composer, to do the to the music, because I thought that lent so much more uh, depth to the project. And he, he, uh, he went on to do Last Starfighter and a bunch of other my movies, and still is a close friend.
2: I was curious about your relationship with James Hart, because I know you guys are credited on a few things together, um, Hook and um, August Rush, if I remember, and I'm not sure what else.
3: I think that's it. I I did a movie with Gary Adelson, the producer for TriStar, called Tap, about tap dancing with Gregory. And the company liked it a lot. They basically asked, oh, what else you got? And Gary had uh, met Jim. On, on, you know on his own and, and told me about a, an idea that jim had which was to to be hooked we went jim and myself and gary went uh, into tristar and pitched the idea and the studio liked it a lot and they wanted me to shepherd you know the writing of the script screenplay because there was no screenplay at that point just a basically a pitch as i recall at least so jim and i uh, worked you know uh you know, I don't know how long—months and months and months—on various drafts of the thing and coming up with new ideas and ways to go. You know, it worked out very well. Jim did a great job, and um, you know, we went on to uh, cast it. Then circumstances changed, where I, I was—I I wasn't uh, able to be the director on it, as you know. Stephen did it, so that—that that was um, the extent of my participation in that. Uh, working on the script and and this and that and then when Jim and I uh, Jim uh, just coincidentally was asked to do a draft after I did a my uh, screen uh, screenplay of, of uh, August Rush and when he realized that he was going to do some work called me out to make sure I was okay with everything and so we talked about uh, the next steps that he was going to put in and and then we just kept in touch since then and and, and during the course of the production so uh, yeah Jim's uh, Joe Jim has some some fantastic ideas it's, very clever guy and a, and a wonderful screen screenwriter
2: have you been involved much in punching up screenplays or things where you're not listed but you definitely had a hand
3: working on stuff not to the extent i would say where i was the uh uh doctor that was brought in to work, work a project i mean to uh, that w- was independent of a of a credit i mean i, I kind of Think of August Rush in a, in a way like that because there was a original screenplay which I, I which didn't work. I didn't think I didn't take advantage at least of what what was available to the story idea. And I, I basically pitched an idea to the producer of how to make it work. And and I said, but I I want to direct it. And he didn't want to commit to that. So I, I I walked away from it. But about six months later. I think I was doing nothing or something. And <laughs> I thought, God, I really could make that thing work. I'm going to call see if he still needs help on it, because it at least I uh, can get done, you know, and uh, even if I don't wind up directing it. So that's actually how that happened. I was just like, uh, it feels a little like what you're saying, but it, I know you're looking for some other thing. No, I think the closest would be maybe a little bit like, uh, like what uh, David's giving me the privilege to do is read the Halloween scripts and coming up with any idea. So that's that's fun, of course.
2: Were you involved at all when there was the lawsuit going on about lockout
3: and Escape from New York? No. So I got some kind of financial settlement for that. That all was done through John's uh, company and his lawyers. And I was just kind of like, okay, just kind of send me. <laughs> I'll take it. You know,
2: were you asked to come back and work on Escape from LA at all?
3: Uh, no, I, I'm forgetting what year. Do you remember what year that was?
2: I think it was '96. It came out, so they're probably working on it. What '95, '94?
3: Yeah. So I was probably doing either Major Pain or Mr. Wrong around that time, and probably. Uh, but I, I you know, so I was I would have been busy, but I don't remember a discussion even having. I think I think Kurt. Really was the driving force of that somehow, and uh, probably, you know. And so they, they, and, and again, uh, while I have a certain sense of um, ownership of the original, I, I, you know, it's still something I always think of as John's project. He could do whatever the heck he wants with it. He was so generous to begin with, and it was such a, an important part of my, uh, of the stepping stones in my career. It's, it's that kind of situation where whatever John wants to do, it's fine with me. There's, uh, and, and I don't even remember at the time knowing it was going on, actually. So I'm, I think I get some kind of credit, though. That's cool. They're always threatening to do another version of that, aren't they, or a remake? They've
2: threatened that at least. I think I've seen it in print about four or five different times now. And every, every few years, it's like, no, this director's attached, and it's going to be this guy playing Snake. And then it switches up every few years. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man, that's hilarious. So when you're not uh, donning your jumpsuit and being the shape these days, what are you working on?
3: You know, I, I'm basically retired. I decided that, you know, it's enough of this. I don't know. Have... <laughs> Uh, you know, I don't have to g- go through the anxiety of dealing with. Uh, well, it could be even very nice studio heads, but you know, you, all the all the anxiety in, in, in that world is can be pretty overbearing. But that being said, it's a, a fantastic art form, and and I and I kind of miss it. So uh, whenever so a couple of times, you know, I so I the answer to that is I, I don't do anything in terms of trying to continue uh, a. A career you know i I'm fine with the, the things that I, I love doing uh, independent of that, but uh, a couple of people have come back to me over the years and've asked me to direct or write things and uh, a few years ago I did uh, a woman came to me and, and wanted me to do a, a screenplay based on a true life event and I did that and uh, at the moment there's some real interest in in moving forward with it uh, it's a movie and it <laughs> You know, it, it it it's interesting how things work out because this was written about I don't know nine years ago. It's about a small town in in uh, Tennessee where the schools are going to be uh, integrated, and it's about the two basketball teams, black team black school and white school, playing for the first time in the championships, and it's all kinds of anxiety going on. How do you quell that? And so it's it it it's a it's a wonderful story. It's a true story. I already did some pre production kind of casting of it and i think they're trying to get the rest of the money so maybe something like that will happen the guy from london called me wanted to do this comedy which was pretty cute so you know i might get back in the saddle again <laughs> but i'm not only my breath
2: well mr castle thank you so much for your time this was great talking with you
3: oh it was nice meeting you
2: I have to thank you so much for the wonderful autobiography that you wrote. It was just delightful to read.
7: Oh, thank you. I'm not sure I have any more answers for you about Escape than you read in the book, but we'll try.
2: (laughs) I did want to know when it came to uh, Escape from New York, how aware of that project were you before it really even got off the ground? From what I understand, that script had been kind of kicking around for a little bit before it finally got the green light
7: don't remember reading it before, you know, before John handed it to me. You know, you're saying that and now I'm thinking, I, John wrote it, right? <laughs> it was, but it was John and Nick, wasn't it? Did J they, they have co, yeah, no, I, I don't think I, I mean, it wasn't like he finished writing it and handed it to me and said, what do you think? I don't remember any of that. So it was probably, great, we're going to make this movie and <laughs> take a look. I, I, but I honestly, I have no recollection.
2: When you did get handed the script, was it like, here you go, you're going to be Maggie? Or was it, see if there's something in here you like?
7: No, I'm sure, and, and I again, that I don't know, but I'm sure he wrote the role of Maggie for me. And the only reason I, I say that is because... Uh, as, as you know, maybe if you read the memoir, I mean, I met him on Someone's Watching Me and he hired me because I think he he, he was a MOD fan, I think, or he knew me from Maud. And he saw in me the possibility of playing the kind of character that he liked to write, the Howard Hawks woman, you know. And so I do remember him handing me the, the script for The Fog. Because I was incredibly disappointed that it wasn't a socially significant film, <laughs> you know, never having seen a horror film in my life. But I'm sure he he wrote Maggie for me because by that time we had already done the two films together. We were together as a as a couple, and he knew I could do that kind of kick ass character. I guess
2: I just rewatched The Fog, and it's so interesting that you are throughout that film. And your voice is so important throughout that film. But you don't really get to interact with very many other actors at all.
7: No. In fact, someone asked me when Hal died last week. Uh, you know, someone asked me uh, how how was it working with him and blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. And although I did work with him on, on Creepshow, I mean, I had no scenes with Hal. I have I've done four movies, I think it is, maybe five, four at least with Tom Atkins. No scenes with Tom. <laughs> and even in, in Escape, somebody, oh, some oh somebody was asking about Donald Pleasance. And, you know, what was it like being on the set when he had to wear the blonde wig and they were shooting at him? And I thought, I don't think I was in those scenes. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and so I couldn't answer.
1: <laughs> yeah, you seem
2: to spend most of your time with uh, Harry Dean Stanton. How was he to work with?
7: Harry Dean was great. I was with Ernie, too, and, of course, Kurt. But Harry Dean was great. John, at that time at least, I don't know how, what his directing was like in, in his with his later films, but John's not a big advocate of ad-libbing or <laughs> going off script or anything. And I do remember Harry sort of, you know, well, couldn't I say this? You know, and so John would sort of had to rein him in a little bit. But that's, that's about all I remember about Harry. What I remember mostly... Is, I remember Isaac being just such a gentleman. We didn't have a lot of off screen time where we got to know each other or anything, but he was, he was very gentle and, uh, just, uh, that, that's sort of the image, the impression I have of him still. And Donald was, you know, probably one of the funniest actors I've ever worked with, funniest men I've ever worked with, uh, with that dry British wit. And invariably, he would say something right before we'd start filming. And I'd have to say, John would say, okay, roll them or action. I'd say, wait, wait, you've got to stop. You've got to stop. I, I it Give me a second to get myself back together again, because Donald would just crack me up. My favorite story, <laughs> or one of my favorite stories about Donald was when we first checked into the hotel in downtown St. Louis. The receptionist who was checking us in said, you know, this is not a good neighborhood. You should not walk around here. Don't, it's it's dangerous. Don't walk around here. Donald wanted to go to a Chinese restaurant that he had heard about. And so he went out the front door and he called a cab and the cab drove him around to the back of the hotel, (laughs) which is where the restaurant was and dropped him off, you know. And then Ernie, Ernie was preparing a one-man show at the time. I don't remember what the format was, but I just have an image every day. I'd come back from work and he'd be sitting in the lobby with his script because he was anxious about memorizing an hour and a half worth of dialogue, you know, a monologue, basically. And he was also, what a, I mean, the whole cast was great. You know, they're just, they were all wonderful. But uh, Harry Dean, I probably didn't spend as much time with as I did with Donald. And, um, and I knew Kurt. Of course, we had been friends since I met John and season. We were, we were, you know, we were good friends. We socialized with Kurt and season all the time. And they just had Boston, the baby. But Harry Dean, I just, I just have that one image in my head of, us getting ready to do something, or him say him starting the scene, and he was you know moving around with the words. And John said, "No, let's uh, let bring it back. You know, <laughs> let's get back to the words on the page."
2: It's such an interesting film to have Kurt Russell, who, if memory serves, that was his first action role, right?
7: Oh yeah, and uh, you probably know from your your research. I mean, it finally came down to John saying. If you don't take Kurt, you don't have the movie because Avco Embassy wanted, um, Charles Bronson. And then, and Tommy Lee Jones was being discussed, but Charles Bronson was, or one of the two of them was angling for it and, uh, the studio wanted it. And John had directed Kurt in Elvis, but up until that time, he was pretty much known as a Disney actor. He certainly wasn't an action, action hero, you know, but, John got his way, <laughs> or they wouldn't have had the script.
2: <laughs> when did they figure out that people weren't clear on your death?
7: The story that I heard is that John put the film together. We, fin- we, you know, finished shooting, and he did his editing and put the film together. He screened it. I don't recall being at the screening, but he screened it for the studio execs and. It's my understanding, and I have tried to reach him several times to confirm it, but I have never been able to, that J.J. Abrams was a teenager at the time, and his dad, I think, was maybe an executive for AVCO Embassy, or for whatever reasons, J.J. Abrams was at the screening. And the story I've heard, (laughs) not from the horse's mouth, is that, you know, when it was over, he raised his hand and said, well, what happened to Maggie? I mean... Is she dead? Is she not dead? Is she, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so we got a very small crew, film crew together. And we came to my, ha- John and my house uh, in Studio City. And we pulled our cars out of the garage. <laughs> I put the original costume on. I still have the boots, by the way. I still wear the boots. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I still wear the boots. They're <laughs> one of my favorites. I boiled another or I roasted another turkey breast so I could have uh, the hair clip that I had made to wear in my hair, and we stretched me out on the the floor of the garage and put some blood around me, and he took that last shot, which effectively eliminated me the possibility of my being in the sequel, but you know, <laughs> strengthened the scene and strengthened the film.:
2: <laughs> I guess I could have cloned you or something. I had read in a few places that you're the voice of the computer in both Judge Dread and Demolition Man. Is that true?
7: You know, it is true, and the only way I, reason I can tell you that it is true is because I still get residuals. I have no, I have no recollection of doing the roles, especially Judge Dredd. I don't. I don't even. Is that another Stallone film? It
2: is. Yeah, which is why I thought it was a little suspect because I think it might have been. Maybe like the next film or two films later for him.
7: Well, I don't know. Do I have credit on IMDb? <laughs> You're
2: not credited, but I had oh, read that before, credited. and it sounds kind of like your voice.
7: I, I know I get residuals for uh, Demolition Man. I believe I have gotten residuals for Judge Dredd, but don't take my word for it.
2: <laughs> Can you tell me about when you actually got to record your own
7: CD? Yeah. Well, I guess it was in the in the late 80s. The the CD came out. The boy I was pregnant with the boys when I was recording it. In fact, I did my last concert at about, you know, 6 months pregnant. So the boys were born in 97. So we were reco- we were recording the CD around in in 97 and I think it was released that year. But in the late 80s I had a cabaret act and um you know, I'd do that when I wasn't doing anything else. And then at some point, somebody said, you know, we should have an album based on the tunes that you were doing in the Cabaret Act. So uh did the album.
2: It's funny to me that your autobiography ends with you going to a writing class, and then I know that you've written several books afterwards, the, the Vampire series.
7: Yes. When my memoir came out, and... If you read you you it sounds like you read the uh, the paperback cover or the hardbound you didn't read the Kindle the Kindle because I did do a uh revised version for Kindle maybe 2 years ago or 3 years ago I don't know, if, you know maybe even more than that um I mean I love physical books and I you know I but <laughs> you know, I was approached by a, an, an e publisher saying, you know, let's do it, an update on the um, on the memoir because she was also publishing the uh, the vampire novels. So I did do a little update on the the memoir. But you asked me about oh, so how did I go on to write the three vampire novels? When the memoir came out, when worse there are worse things I could do came out, I was approached by an Irish author who had many many books published in the uk and ireland and, and uh, hadn't had i don't know if he'd had anything published here he was very familiar with the horror genre and sci-fi and uh, you know he had written many things in across the board uh, even romance and children's books and he said you know i love the memoir but you wrote the wrong book i said what i'm sorry what do you mean and he said you should write a book for your horror genre fan base you know you should write a, a horror novel or a, you know a science fiction or something like that and i said well i don't know i'm not i don't know if i'm a if i'm a, a storyteller i mean the memoir i knew i knew all those stories i knew how they began and end and you know and he said well I'll work with you on it. And so we, you know, we sat down. He said, what do you want to, you know, what what kind of thing do you want to do? And it's not a genre, the vampire genre certainly was not a genre I had ever read, except for George R.R. Martin's book, Fever Dream, which George Romero had given to me in the early 80s because he was interested in bringing it to the big screen and he wanted to know what I thought. And I loved it. But I, I was not a, you know, I didn't know anything about vampires. I'd never seen Dracula or anything like that. But I wanted, you know, I wanted to write about what I knew and what I know is, uh, you know, strong women, my industry, uh, Armenian and, um, and mysteries because I'm a nonstop stop serial mystery reader, <laughs> you know, detective novels. Uh, legal courtroom dramas, Robert Parker, John Sanford, Michael Connolly, you know, Robert Crace, Nelson DeMille, uh, you know, that's what I know, those kinds of things. So together we, we created Vampires of Hollywood. Uh, which is about uh, a 450-year-old Armenian vampire who happens to be the head of a small movie studio in Los Angeles. It's an- actually in Santa Clarita, <laughs> where we filmed uh Carnival. And she's the star of 17 blockbuster horror films and a couple that just went straight to DVD. And her clan includes the A-list Hollywood actors, some of whom have past, and some of whom are still alive, Orson Welles, and Mary Pickford, and Robert Downey Jr., and Elvis, and and someone is killing off the A-list Hollywood actors, uh, her clan, her vampire clan. So she eventually teams up with a uh, Beverly Hills detective, who finally discovers her true identity. And they go about trying to figure out who's killing off her clan. So that was Vampires of Hollywood. And then we got a a, a publishing deal from St. Martin's for two novels. Well, when time came to write the second one, my co-author wasn't available. And so I wrote the second one myself, Love Bites. I think that's probably my favorite of the series. And eventually, that was optioned for a feature by Harrison Smith who directed Death House and uh, a bunch of, you know, horror films. I think he has one out right now that's making the rounds called The Special. And Harrison, you know, optioned it and then said, uh, how do you feel about us co-writing the screenplay? So we did. And so he is now in the process of shopping that. But the, the series is a trilogy, and so... I finished writing Love Bites and my publisher came to me, my ebook publisher came to me and said, you know, you gotta write a, you gotta write the third one in this. So I, write, I wrote Make Me Dead, uh, which is just available as a, uh, for Kindle or, you know, a notebook or whatever they call. And so that was my, that was my writing career. I am now, and this is probably, well, I'm working on something right now that uh, we're in talks with a publisher, but it will be a uh, a nonfiction book about the Broadway musical Grease. And that's all I can say about it until, <laughs> until we can go a little farther. I'm co-writing that with the uh, original director of Grease, Tom Moore, and the producer.
2: Oh, great. Has that been what's keeping you busy during the pandemic?
7: Yes. Oh, my God. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That and um, I do a lot of video captioning for the blind for films and television series. And so and and I can do most of that from my home, too. So that's I've been very, very fortunate to be able to keep creating and uh, have something to keep me busy besides mopping the floors and, and emptying the dishwasher, which I'm really tired of. <laughs> and it just
2: fills up again.
7: You know, I realized this morning, it's the repetition that that you don't usually experience when you're leaving the house to go to work, or you know, you've got to do this, or you can run errands, or you can do this, but it's the constant repetition of certain tasks, like emptying the dishwasher, that finally started, I find that I'll empty half the dishwasher, and then I'll go off and do something else, and then come back and empty the rest, because I just don't want to repeat the same motions over and over again, which is why I'm an actor. You know, you never know what you're going to be doing.
2: I was curious if you were doing more voice acting, uh, if you have a recording studio at home, because I know you've done a lot of voice work over the years.
7: I just finished doing a a, a very interesting genre musical. I'm trying to remember how <laughs> how how we all describe it. Let's see if I can find. It's a 10-episode radio show, a musical about the the genre wars. Manhattan is now, or, or New York City, is now the five boroughs, and there's the one that is controlled by the fan size. And the one that is controlled by the Hepburners, who like black and white movies. And the one that is controlled by, let's see, uh, the cartoonists. And it's quite unique, uh, sort of delightful. It's called The World to Come. And I believe the first five episodes are already available. It's a podcast. But mine will not drop until March 15th. The episode that I did, and then she may be recurring. So that that was fun to do. I went into a studio for that one, but I do most of my video captioning from here at the house. I don't know if you know if you're familiar with Source Connect, but it is uh, I guess you'd call it an app. I don't know. It's a it's a program that where my producer can be in his house. And the engineer is in the studio, and I'm in my studio, and all I'm doing is reading the script, and they're recording it, and and the producer is listening to it, and then coming back and saying, okay, we need a retake on that line, you know, you need to say it faster or whatever. That really freed us up. We turned to that when the when the pandemic hit.
2: I think you have stuff coming up this afternoon, so I don't want to keep you too long, but I just wanted to tell you how delightful this was to talk with you.
7: Well, thank you. Thank you.
2: Tell me about your experience working with John Carpenter on Escape from New York.
4: That was uh, interesting. What happened was Phil Gersh was my agent. He was a big time agent in Hollywood. He he used to handle Humphrey Bogart and all these big actors in the the fifties. And later in his career, he decided to just to handle production designers and camera people and stuff and uh, and some producers and directors and stuff. And anyway, I directed just briefly a sequence in Jaws where the little kid eats the raft, There's shark eats the raft. And then I storyboarded all that stuff. So when I got to Jaws 2, bringing a director in that I knew quite well, and I had been responsible for him getting the job, and we were behind schedule because we wanted a certain release in the summer. So I ended up doing a lot of second unit directing. i right? probably, I think, 85 days of second unit of shark, going through the canopies and uh, various things. So I, my head was into directing, and I wanted to make that transition. I had a movie called Out in Front. It was about Formula One racing. And I had been racing Formula cars, Formula Two cars in this country. So Bill Gilmore was vice president of some company, I can't remember the name now, Amoco or something. Anyway, So he liked the idea, and we went scouting to all the courses, Formula One courses in Europe, uh, Monte Carlo, in England, France, whatever. And I came back, we came back, and the company had sold to somebody else, and so that was canceled. A week later, my father died, and it was just really sad, and and my my agent called me, and he says, you have gotta go back to work, you gotta go design something. And he says, there's this young couple that he represents, Deborah Hill and John Carpenter. I think you should talk to them. They were making movies that cost $300,000, you know. What did they make? Uh, two big, big movies. But there was a very small budget, Halloween and the other one. I can't remember. Anyway, I went with them, and they said, this is going to be a big budget. We get 5 or $6 million. And I said, oh, okay, not too big. But, but they were going to pay me the same amount of money that I was making. I had a really good relationship with Deborah Hill. She was a real go-getter. She was like, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, we're going to get it, you know. Very aggressive, but I liked her. John was more laid back. He smoked a little pot, and yeah, okay, well, we'll get to that, you know. And I said, well, okay, I broke the script down, which... If you saw my Jaws book, you'll see a script breakdown there, and you go through the script, and you write down, and then you make little notes or little sketches. And I said, "Well, look at—we got this thing where you need a bridge and a big wall. So you need a big wall and build a bridge, or you need a bridge and then build a wall. Uh, and and that's sort of like an important part of the uh, uh, of that set." So I said we should start scouting for bridges. And Barry Bernardi was the location guy. He later became a pretty successful producer. He says, "Oh yeah, we're going to get to it." You know, I said John, and I, see, and I think my relationship with John at first was I was too aggressive. I was used to. We gotta, you know, I'm, I just built the biggest set ever at that time and get this book of records. And you, you gotta get started. You gotta plan these things. So being older, I was probably ten years older than everybody because they were pretty young. So Barry says, "Okay, well, there's there's a bridge in St. Louis that they're not using." And so I said, "Let's fly to St. Louis." So I went to St. Louis and I saw this bridge and it was nice bridge, and, and I said, okay, I could build a wall, 200-foot wall, 50 feet high or whatever, at the end of the bridge. And what happened is, because of his escape from New York, Larry Franco was the first assistant, and John and I flew to New York, and we climbed the Twin Towers, you know, you could go up there at that time, and we looked at New York, and John said, oh, this is too much to handle, You're trying to shoot control New York. I said, yeah, we'll have to see what we could do. So anyway, when I got to St. Louis, I realized there was an urban development area where they were going to rebuild a lot of stuff. And so it really wasn't used. Also, had a great old railroad, which had a lot of character. And uh, so I brought John there, and I said, John, I could just fill this with trash, and we could shoot this and that, and we could say this is New York. And you got the bridge and all that. So he liked the idea. What I needed was an airplane crash. So I said, okay, we'll do this, and the crash will be here. So I'm going to go to Arizona, where they have used airplane parts, and, and collect a lot of pieces. And I'll ship them here. We'll have a tail section and various things. So I'm going through. I think Mark Madgebridge was my assistant at the time. But he left to go to direct a movie. Anyway, and we started making a list of what this tail and this wing section. And the guy there said, Oh, he says, you need a big airplane. I said, yeah. He says, there's a, a DC eight, which was a prop plane, but uh, for sale, but it was not used anymore. It was, it was just junk. And I said, really? He says, yeah, they only want like 5,000 for it. I said, where is it? He said, in St. Louis. I said, Oh, my God. So I went back to St. Louis. I looked at this plane, and my painter would become sort of construction coordinator. And I said, I need this. We'll take the props off so they look like jets. And he, he cut the thing in, like, three pieces and shipped it. We didn't even get permits. We just put it in this lot. And so John came, and I said, and this is the shot. Now Kurt walks across here, and we set the thing on fire. Royal get the plane burning and, and so great. So that next morning people said, well, what are we shooting? And John said, Oh, we're shooting Joe's shots. I mean, this is the relationship we had. He said, Oh, Joe's got it worked out. we we'll are shoot what Joe said. You know, we, we got very comfortable with that kind of thing. Roy would start it on fire, and then I said, "Okay, cut." I mean, and he'd say, "Cut." I said, "Put the fire out." And, he, and Roy said, "I can't; it's magnesium keeper." I said, "John, we got to really do a second shot real quick." So anyway, that that was a, an interesting thing. Another interesting thing was in the San Fernando Valley. Uh, there's this uh, river, LA River, and there's a big basin there. And I uh, said so that would be a great place to build the United States police force. So I did these sort of model modern buildings, sort of in black, because it was United States Police Force. You know, we, we were like being very fascist kind of thing. We controlled, police controlled everything. But it was supposed to be on Liberty Island. So I built this entrance little building, sort of uh, just a uh, wedge-shaped kind of thing. It had an entranceway. So we collapsed that. It was two sides that came to a peak. So it was easy to collapse. And we put that on a a truck and we drove it to Liberty Island and we put it on a ferry, the last ferry to the island so we didn't have to pay for a special boat. And we set it up and we had Tommy Atkins come down the Statue of Liberty and go to the check-on point and then go through and Dean Cundy was the cameraman, and he was, like, the best, I got to tell you. So what he did is a continuous shot of Tommy coming in, and then it goes to United States Police Force, just letters, uh, U.S. Police Force. And then it goes just to black, and we got just a blackie cuts. We put the thing back on the truck, bring it to L.A. He brings it, there's no effect shot here. He puts the camera in the same distance, measures everything, turns it on, and then he pans to the right and Tommy comes out and we're in L.A. police force thing. And so it was very, very, very clever. And I gotta tell you, he was so good at shooting day for night and night for night were a lot of films where they show you dark and you don't see anything. And and yet it was night, but you could see people quite clearly. So he had a way of lighting and shooting that you you believed it was all night, and some of it was night, but uh, it was just lit a certain way. You could see the people, the actors, uh, which I always respected about his work. Very, very good cameraman. It was St. Louis and the uh, L.A. River area, bit there. There was a, And we shot, supposed to be the Trade Center. We shot that in L.A. There's two huge buildings in Beverly Hills area. We shot that. Then we shot some locations where I had to take the walls and do a lot of graffiti and stuff like that. And uh, we shot that at the Art Institute in Pasadena. And so I put a huge... Uh, you know, just paper, rolls of white paper, and then we would gra- graffiti that. So that was basically it. That was the locations and sets. And uh, it's interesting because, um, you know, Kurt Ress, of course, I, we worked with his, his wife on, uh, I mean, his partner, Goldie Hahn. She was really cute nice lady. It was a, It was one of the happiest movies I worked on just the relationship with people so you know some movies I'm not that they're unhappy but they're just so much work but the crew was very friendly and we were getting things done and we were doing it I remember we were shooting a train station in Atlanta which we ended up cutting out but we had to redo posters and stuff and I'm out there putting this up and Cundy came up to me and he says, That's pretty amazing. Production designer, Academy Award nominee and stuff, putting up posters. I said, We got to do what we got to do, you know, and that's the way it was. We didn't, it was more of a, a team effort, you know. Yeah, it it was fun. It was a fun movie. The next thing I did with John was uh, Starman. And uh, that I, I did, he wanted me to design it. And I said, Now I'm trying to get something directed, but I'll, I'll be a consultant. Visual consultant, which I, I designed a spaceship for it, and, uh, and I directed the second unit. And that was pretty much uh, our relationship after that. You did
2: one that I absolutely love, and um, I don't think it's enough credit. And you were associate producer as well as production designer on it, and that is uh, Free Jack.
4: Yeah, interesting. Free Jack, yeah, with the Jack. That was a, a lot of work, and I thought that I did some pretty good work on it. And uh, the, uh, the the critics panned the hell out of it. One really picked on my sets. And what was, yeah, you know, and uh, it was uh, interesting because the studio, whoever ran that, that was Warner Brothers, I think. And they gave the director a really hard time. And he was really such a, a good guy. He was an Australian guy. Jeff Murphy, what a nice guy. But the studio kept pushing him and this and that, and Emilio Estevez wasn't quite right, I guess, because uh, the reading lady, she seemed stronger than he... I don't, but he was a nice guy, and we were shooting some late night in some building, and there was a big tablet of Paper on an easel, and I started drawing a, uh, a shark, just wasting time. And he says, "Oh my God, my lo- my brother would love that, you know, Charlie Sheen." And he said, uh, "That's good. Here's t- Charlie, Joe." So I gave it to to him. A couple of years later, I uh, did a movie with Charlie, and uh, and he uh, he thanked me for that. But anyway, uh, it was interesting. The Uh, it was a lot of work uh, doing that show and I thought it was going to be successful. You know, uh, interesting, um, that, uh, it just sort of died. You know, I was thinking about that. So I'm standing, and I was thinking about that because somebody was talking about Anthony Hopkins. So we're at the big set there and Anthony comes in and he's standing there. And I, I mentioned, I said, Anthony, this is, uh, you know, you're such a great actor. You know, the scene you're going to do. He looks at me and he says, Me, are you kidding? Look at the stuff you're doing. Boy, this is fantastic. And it, it was such a compliment, you know. And I thought, Oh, good. I guess this is great. And then uh, some of the critics uh, didn't do it well, and the picture just sort of uh, did nothing. But uh, yeah, it was quite a challenge.
2: Mr. Alves, thank you so much for your time today.
4: Oh, you're quite welcome. <laughs>
7: Welcome to the theater. For everyone's enjoyment, we'd like to remind you of the following rules. No talking. No smoking. No littering.
4: No red meat. No freedom of religion.
7: And remember, all marriages must be approved by the Department of Health. Failure to obey these rules will result in immediate loss of citizenship and deportation to the island of los angeles enjoy the show
5: your rules are really beginning to annoy me
7: Ah! he ran a psycho profile on him using a database of five million sociopathic personalities he hit the bottom of the curve catches on quick doesn't she
4: I love the winner. Let's say we play a little Bangkok rules.
3: Nobody draws until this hits the ground. You ready?
2: Draw. You got a problem with that? All right, we are back, and we are talking about Escape from New York. So we mentioned a little bit earlier that there were a lot of other escape froms that were bandied about uh over the years. I had heard specifically of one called Escape from Earth. I don't remember if I heard about that before Escape from L.A. or not, but there were definitely talks of different adventures of Snake Plissken because... He doesn't die at the end of this one, and he's not waiting around to see if he's infected or if Childs is infected, like uh, the thing. So the idea of continuing making more Snake pliskin movies or projects was kind of, to me anyway, a no-brainer. Uh, and we ended up getting Escape from L.A. in, what, 1996, I think it was? Yes, sir. And... I can't say that it's a sequel cuz it it is it's basically it's a remake. I mean, you can take almost every single character in the movie and equate them to a character from the first movie, which I think is kind of doing a little bit of a disservice cuz I I really wanted more Snake Plissken adventures whereas this just feels like a retread of the first Snake Plissken adventure.
6: Mike, there's a submarine, all right? It's totally different. It's it's not the same. <laughs> There's plastic surgeons. It's on the other coast. Ha, huh, it's different.
2: Yeah, map to the stars, Eddie is in no way cabbie. Yes, nope. I know. I know that uh what's the guy's name? Cuervo Jones. Cuervo
6: Jones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, He's Duke of New York. No
2: way the Duke nope. of New York because they're all pale Im- imitations. Cuervo Jones, what the fuck, dude, that he's got the basketball court and he's got the guy out there cutting heads off of people that can't make the shot clock. It's so
6: Oh, hey, I love the basketball scene. I freaking love the basketball scene. I I love it. Kurt Russell makes every shot, even that long-ass full-court one. That, to me, says... The movie is worth watching just for that.
2: It just looks so fucking cheap so often. Like yeah, it does. Him walking through the back alleys, and you've got all the girls from Central Casting dressed up in their prostitute outfits. <laughs> him walking into L.A., and it's just like, okay, Kurt, you can't walk one step more, or else you'll like run into the painting that we put up. I mean, it just... It looks bad. The The special effects, especially when the waves come and destroy the cars, and then he starts surfing. When he surfed, because I saw Escape from L.A. in the theater, and when he surfed, I almost lost my fucking mind. You and everybody else.
6: The CGI supervisor, David Jones, did you ever hear that, that he took responsibility for that? He said it was his fault. Yeah, from Buena Vista Visual Effects. They they just, honestly, they had 50 million. The first film, to put it in perspective, the first film was $7 million, right? This was $50 million. It was a big budget movie at the time. And they went with a house that didn't really have a reputation for computer-generated effects, yet had a ton of computer-generated effects involved and just didn't know what they were doing. So I agree all the special effects are really not good, even for the time. They're just not good.
2: I love the story of them doing the special effects for the first movie, how they're like, yeah, we talked to John Dykstra and his consultation fee was a million (laughs) dollars. And so they shopped around all of the effects and ended up at new world. And there was this guy, I think his name is something like James Cameron, something, something, something Terminator, something Titanic. I, 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 yeah, some sort of boat movie he made. Uh, I think he also did Piranha 2. But yeah, he was in charge of a lot of the special effects and stuff. So, but they ended up shopping it to a pretty cheap new world and ended up getting those fucking fantastic effects. It helps that you've got Joe Alves as the production designer and he's coming off of stuff like Close Encounters of the Third Kind where they're just, you know, bleeding money. And they, you know, here he is like, okay, Joe, you got $300,000, make it work. And he fucking made it work. Everybody makes it fucking work. And then you get to so many years later and it's just like, man, this doesn't work. This hang gliding scene doesn't work. Nothing works.
0: The visual effects are unforgivable in this movie. You know, like a lot of times when bad CG gets uh like uh reevaluated, it's like, oh, it just feels like a cutscene from a PlayStation game. Like this didn't even feel like that. It felt like the previs you would see now. Like you'd see a comparison video on YouTube, the previs versus the finished thing. Here's the previz, that's good enough.
2: It's like that version of Wolverine Origins that leaked, you know. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember that.
6: That's
2: a, that's a callback. The only thing that I really liked about it was the plastic surgery scene and the makeup effects, the Rick Baker makeup, makeup effects of Bruce Campbell with that super tiny pointy nose and those huge cheeks. It just, he looks monstrous. And it's like, you wouldn't, I mean, he, he looks worse there than he does as a demon. And I mean that as a compliment. It's like he's almost unrecognizable until he starts talking and you get the Bruce. Campbell voice, but man, he looks good. I really like what they were doing there, and I like the idea of this is L.A. So we're going to you know plastic surgery has gone wild, but then you get Valerie Galino and that fucking horrible shag wig that she's wearing. What is going on with that?
0: In 93, I I was a projectionist at a theater in Santa Monica, and we were always sort of awash in film industry people who I'd never fanboyed out about. But Kurt Russell was there once, smoking a cigarette out front, and I went and smoked one with him. And at the time, I was like, please, please, please make a sequel to Escape from New York. And then a couple of years later, uh, like maybe six months, three, four months maybe, before the movie came out, uh, the theater chain I worked at would constantly get invitations to – Films in order to determine whether or not they were going to uh, exhibit them. So there was a screening of Escape from L.A., and I got to drive onto the Paramount lot and sit in the Paramount Theater, which is, as a projectionist, the best theater I've ever seen ever. It's, it was just gorgeous. Just sitting there, and the music comes up, and the titles come up. I was never more excited for a movie and never more disappointed with everything that followed. In fact, when I rewatched it for this podcast, when the titles come up again, I got that same feeling like, oh, something good is going to happen now. But then it
2: just falls to pieces.
6: I don't feel the same.
2: That's fine, buddy.
6: I might get kicked out of the podcast. I don't know what the rules are. but No, no I I enjoy this movie despite its flaws. I, I realize it's a very, I think the effects are terrible. Probably for a movie of this size, some of the worst I've ever seen. It does look like pre-res. It's a bit too campy for sure. But I also think that kind of fits with the L.A. vibe. I, I really do in in many respects. I love the take on L.A. There's a lot of great ideas that don't necessarily get good execution here. I hate this I hate, I hate i hate i hate i can't stop saying it i just can't i hate the surfing scene i just don't like it i think it's idiotic and i don't i never understood why anyone thought that was a great idea for snake Pliskin to be doing that but the hang gliding thing it was all right that didn't bother me so much but there's so much other stuff that just i find fun i think the the assault that snake Pliskin's doing was on the um brigade or whatever it was, whether they Corvo Jones and his um, entourage are driving away and he's going car to car to car. I love that. I love the draw moment. (laughs) The Bangkok rules. Good. I love that moment.
0: No question.
2: Yep.
6: Just to me, it was one of those. Thank you. That snake Plissken. He, he cheats. That's a stupid thing that you guys were going to do. You were actually going to wait for this can to drop. That's idiotic. And I personally, despite its flaws, the last 10 minutes, which I believe Carpenter said Kurt Russell wrote the the ending. I don't know if that's confirmed or not, but I believe he said that I love the last 10 minutes of the movie. I, I love the actual ending. I think the ending is fricking great. I know it's very reminiscent, obviously of escape from New York, but on the same token, I just love the whole shut the world down and snake Plissken does it because no other hero would do that. No other antihero would do that. He shut the whole freaking world. Down. I thought that was a great touch and then just i
0: agree goes away. The, definitely the 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 most snake plissken moment of the entire movie but as far as like what they have him doing and the way he's portrayed it seems like everyone kind of forgot what we liked about him to begin with that yeah he's a badass and he's a man of few words but there was also kind of a sense of humor in the first film and uh uh you know it wasn't all just the kind of bluster it feels like you know like, like it feels like Dan Aykroyd coming back to Elwood Blues like he suddenly doesn't know how to do the accent and doesn't really seem to get what that character was anymore like I, I'm not saying that it's that extreme here but it just seems like the characterization of Pliskin is of a piece with the rest of the movie in that it's more comic booky and fantastical and everything the first movie wasn't there are some things I do like about it the first film takes place in New York but it's not like, like, hey, clearly we're in Times Square now, or clearly we're at Madison Square Garden. The path that he follows from Mulholland down to Hollywood into Beverly Hills to the West Side and then has to fly down to like, like that all I liked and I did like the takes that they had, like the, the, the Beverly Hills sequence, of course, being the most pointed. It's just so lame. <laughs> why didn't they just have an airstrike you know instead of sending in snake plissken in a, in a submarine just send a thermonuclear device and create an earthquake like there's no reason for him to be going in and getting this thing it's just ridiculous
6: well apparently they only made one you know you got to have that one so you can the you one can thing yeah. target the thing but I, here's the way I looked at it and I guess maybe this is just my perspective but to me New York escape from New York is very gritty down and dirty it's very New York in that respect this felt that they were, and I'm not saying they accomplished it in every, in every way, but this one to me felt like they were going for more of the LA aesthetic, more of the LA vibe, the, a little bit more campier, a lot more colorful, a lot more, I don't want to say comedic, but comedic undertones. And they definitely don't, they don't understand having a character like Snake Pliskin in that world. And it just seems like everybody is just enamored with him like they would be with celebrity. So to me, I, that's how I kind of, Saw it, And maybe that's just what I convinced myself about so I can enjoy it.
2: I mean, it kind of fits the whole thing, because isn't the running gag in this one, I thought you were taller?
6: Yeah, like Tom Cruise.
2: Yep. Yeah, like Tom Cruise or Sylvester Stallone and any of these action heroes. It's, I thought you'd be taller. You can tell that Carpenter got into comic books because this movie feels like a comic book. And I think it actually probably would have been better served to have been a comic book because it hits those beats so familiar that we saw in the first one, and I wish it would have just kind of gone off in a little bit of a different direction. That I you have Cuervo Jones driving around in this big car, and rather than like the chandelier, you've got like all these baby heads on his uh, car, and I'm just like, what? What? What am I watching here? Yeah, I I like the end of it as well. I like the idea that America, and I know that this is completely crazy and this would never happen, that America has fallen under the auspices of a crazy religious fanatic and has turned the U.S. into a police state based upon Christianity. I know that that sounds crazy, would never, ever happen, that nobody that we have in the government would ever support anything like that. Everyone believes in the separation of church and state. So this is just this whole weird world that we're in. Cliff Robertson does such a good job as this religious fanatic who really isn't that religious at all. As soon as he gets the opportunity, he's going to – Basically, we have a man murdered on camera in front of the world. Okay, and
6: kill, and kill his daughter at the same
2: time. And kill his daughter. Yes, he doesn't give a shit about anything other than his political goals. Imagine that. I like that. I like the end, even though it's very Total Recall to me. This whole, you know.
1: Do you think this is the real Quaid? It is.
2: It catches on
6: quick, doesn't she? <laughs>
0: <I> like that. <laughs> I like that delivery. I like the whole religious sort of uh, uh, oligarchy kind of thing, but. Uh, What felt misplaced at the end is the sort of – uh, this is, I'm sure, Carpenter and Russell talking like, you know, we're in America and there's no more smoking and there's no more red meat. And I'm thinking yeah. about a president who is from Lynchburg. Like it would be a law that everyone has to smoke <laughs> and everyone has to eat red
2: meat. And everybody's got to drink whiskey.
6: You caught the got a smoke line too, right? Like a throwback to – I mean he's got that a lot in his movies. he got a smoke line. Yeah.
2: Why is Pam Greer's voice lowered –
6: He lowered it an octave and a half because
2: yeah, totally unnecessary, totally distracting. Well, because that's how trans people talk. Don't you know? Lord,
6: I I will say like for this time, hardly any directors were ever coming close to a transgender character. So I think he deserves something for that, for at least making the attempt. I'm not saying he, he got it right. You know, people learn it's been 20 plus years or whatever, you know, that's how long ago it was, but I think he was making the attempt to make a tough transgender character.
0: I like Car Jack Malone. She's a good character, and it was fun to see somebody from Pliskin's past who isn't intimidated by him at all. Is just giving shit back right. to him. It's just like, why go this? Oh, the voice. Yeah,
2: yeah,
6: yeah. Okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Okay, I misunderstood what your argument was.
2: The thing about this movie that. I like and also disappoints me at the same time. Is I love all of these actors that are in here. I mean, I fucking love Buscemi, love Stacy Keach, love Michelle Forbes. All of these characters, other than the guy that plays Quervo Jones, who I wasn't really familiar with. I kept thinking that he was Gregory Sierra, and I was like, no, no, Gregory Sierra is probably like seventy when the time when this movie was made. <laughs> but I was just like, yeah, I love all of these actors and uh, the relationship that that snake has with hawk is not necessarily mirrored with the relationship that he has with Stacy Keach which is a shame because i love Stacy Keach also making it two people by having Keach and Forbes there i thought wasn't really the best idea in the world i love Michelle Forbes but she's not Tom Atkins you know Atkins is there in the first movie but he's not nearly as present as Michelle Forbes is in this one she seems to almost outrank Stacey Keach, you know, like almost. Yeah. They're taking the directions from her. Well, maybe it's that matriarchal society that we're going to get in <laughs> yeah. on Mars in <laughs> a few it's years. the first step.
0: I wish she would have taken full charge and cut that ponytail off.
2: I was saying during Escape
0: from New York, like it was it was heartening to see characters on both sides of like the, the divide that is Snake Plissken who are decent and trying to do the right thing. Here we just get cartoon bad guys on one side and cartoon bad guys on the other.
6: I agree with that. It's definitely a less nuanced movie. It's more straightforward, more action, just a sci-fi action flick. I just, I just enjoyed it. And I think also, Kurt Russell's having a good time. And I, I, it's hard for me to not have a good time when he's having a good time, I guess.
2: Aaron, you never have to apologize for having a good time. No, I feel like my,
6: my whole life I've had to apologize for liking this movie. So
2: Never have to apologize for liking a movie. I, I, I don't even <laughs> like the term guilty pleasure. You, know, oh, you should horrible. just have pleasure. Never oh. feel guilty about anything. You know, I saw,
6: this is a true story. I am about shit myself. I'm doing research for this podcast, and there was some, art, I think it was Entertainment Weekly, back in 2007, I believe is the date. This w- Escape from New York. Not this one. Escape from New York was voted the number one guilty pleasure. Oh, of fuck those guys. I was like, fuck you and everybody associated with this article. If you think that's a guilty pleasure, I don't feel guilty. One second of that movie. This one I do. There's there's seconds where I definitely feel guilty.
2: I would say don't feel too guilty with this.
0: To your point earlier, Aaron, about like this being a more L.A. movie, like, I think that's true. And I think we were all willing to go with this character into new places in new situations. But for some goddamn reason, they had it in their mind that people only wanted to see Escape from New York again with a high gloss on it. And that's the ultimate failure of the film. And further, like, you know, we end up at this fake Disneyland, the happy kingdom by the sea at the end of this movie. Other than like a couple of, you know, distant mat shots, we get the idea that it's an amusement park. Really, it just feels like a movie backlot. And all I kept thinking during the sequence is, why doesn't the whole end of this movie take place on a ruined movie backlot? You know, we could have stumbled onto a Western town at some point and like Carpenter could have really done his thing. Would have been perfect. I, You should have wrote the, that part of it, because that would have been...
6: Can we just agree at this point, after Beverly Hills Cop 3 and this, that amusement parks are not good sets for movies? Unless it's vacation. That's literally the only time I want to see an amusement park on film again.
0: I liked Adventureland quite a bit.
6: Okay. All right. There's another one. I forgot about that one. It's the
5: world's most secure prison. It holds the planet's deadliest criminals. It's impenetrable because it's not on Earth.
1: I'm going to ask you a few questions. Do you dream while you're under? I'm going to dream about you. You Want to test me? Sit down. He's got a gun.
3: Mr. President, there's been a massive takeover on MS-1 my daughter is on a goodwill
0: mission on that station
5: there's only one man who can get her out who snow he's the best there is but he's a loose cannon don't get me wrong it's a dream vacation i mean i'd go into space i'd get inside the maximum security nut house get past all the psychos Save the president's daughter. She's not dead already. I'm thrilled that you would think of me.
2: Get in there. God, I hate heights.
5: The gravity generator will hold you up. You gotta trust me on this. Really?
1: What the hell are you doing? I am bringing you back from the dead.
3: Can I have your attention? meal a woman we need her to live. what the hell is happening here
2: it's falling out of the
3: sky
5: by Timmy, my little enemy. impact on the eastern seaboard in eight minutes we're gonna get out of here what if this doesn't work well then we're probably gonna die Don't worry, it's perfectly safe.
2: A ah! ah! simple thank you is enough. Ah. So, speaking of a movie where I like a lot of the people that are in it, but I don't know if I necessarily like the end product. Let's talk about the 2012 film based on an original idea by Luc Besson.
0: Hey, there's a bullshit. <laughs>
2: Which stars Guy Pierce, who I fucking love Guy Pierce, Lenny James, who again, I love. Peter Stormare, who the man has been in horrible movies, but he can do no wrong by me. I just love every time Stromer is on anything. And then you get some other people too. Maggie Grace and the guy with the crazy eye and his brother. And I guess, are we supposed to be surprised when it turns out these two are brothers? I don't know.
0: I was. Sure.
2: Lockout 2012, which has the distinction. Like I was out there looking for articles about other near escape from movies. And after a certain time, the only thing that if you look up escape from New York sequels or ripoffs or because we should say as well, after escape from New York came out, the Italians jumped on. This post apocalyptic cityscape, and there was like a whole wave of Italian knockoff films and probably other countries as well. But I'm thinking especially of like 1999 after the fall of New York, and what there was Bronx Warriors, and there were like a few other. And so I was looking, I was trying to find like a list of all of these movies because I knew that they existed, just like how Mad Max spurred all of these other movies i was like oh escape from new york also did but now if you look up ripoffs of escape from new york all you get are articles about lockout
0: yes thanks to the litigation
2: and i i can't see it i just can't see the uh i can't see the similarities you know like, <laughs> <Shit>. uh, <laughs> Shit.
6: even guy pierce got the script and he was like man i can't wait to play snake blitzkin this is gonna be great
2: don't you mean Marion snow
6: oh yeah yeah Oof. Good yeah, God. even the John Wayne reference is a nod back to it. Yeah,
2: I love Guy Pierce, but man, is he not suited for these little one-liner quips and stuff? Miscast
0: spectacularly. I think somebody like Ryan Reynolds could have probably played that role. And Guy Pierce doesn't do a bad job or anything, but good lord, like the the character itself is just kind of an asshole. I don't even care about. It. Here's here's my total review of the movie: Projectile weapons on a space station. The end.
2: The movie drags. It has no right to drag, and it drags. It drags so much, because I am i was thinking about it the other day, and, and I rewatched it, and I was just like, okay, I can remember the beginning, and I remember a little bit of the middle, and then I remember the end, but there's a lot of shit in here that just drags the story down, and it doesn't do anything, which is – I mean, I like Luc Besson a lot. You know, I was the guy who last week was like, oh, yeah, District B-12 or B-13. It's fucking fantastic. You should see that movie. And here he is. Here's Luc Besson ripping off another John Carpenter film, but not doing it nearly as good. The, there's the whole scene, the car chase scene on
0: Earth, like 15 years after Escape from L.A., and the effects are somehow worse. What is going on? Just garbage i think like once they got into space the effects weren't so terrible and like there was a sort of zero g fight like i thought that was kind of fun until the henchmen like shot out a touchscreen panel which turned off the turbines and by the way if you can restart those turbines remotely can't you just lower the oxygen levels in the space station until everyone passes out and then go do whatever you need to do it's it's like when we're talking about sort of speculative fiction and in, in, in genre, I mentioned before, you're asking the audience to suspend their disbelief quite a bit. So all the other stuff has to be solid. And this one was just like, you know, escape from New York on a
2: space station. It, it, it writes itself. But it doesn't. He doesn't take the time to actually flesh out stuff and be like, OK, here's the next obstacle he has to get past. Here's the next interesting character. Because, again, you're fucking limited. You're on a space station. And it's only, you know, like when they talk about how it's only criminals in New York in the first movie, Escape from New York. Yeah, there are some really good people. There are some interesting people that are there. But these these guys are so interchangeable. And, I mean, thank goodness that the one bad guy, well, thank goodness that both of the major bad guys have these accents, and then the one guy's (laughs) accent is way worse than the other guy's, and he has a wonky eye. Thank goodness for that, because otherwise I wouldn't be able to tell them apart from all of these other guys that are just, like, hanging out. And a weird choice to make a character, this Irish, suspended,
0: like, psychopath, so soon after Justin Theroux did it in the Charlie's Angels movie. Like, he just could not stop ripping off everything that was, you know, rattling in his brain.
6: Lockout was one of those movies I saw it in the theater. I think it came out the same week as Cabin in the Woods. If I don't, if I remember right, and I remember having a great time with it. But I think it's more because I went with a group of friends. It reminded me completely of Escape from New York, and I, I liked Guy Pierce. I, I he didn't bother me at all. And then I rewatched it for this, and I'm like, wow, there's a lot of story issues that I didn't remember at all. Because damn, there's a lot of them. But I still like Guy Pierce. I think he does a, a fine job. Like he's not. You know, Kurt Russell shouldn't be worried at any, any point, but he does a fine enough job. I There's a couple of quips in there where I laughed and, I, and a couple other ones. I'm like, yeah, you didn't deliver that very well. You tried too hard on that one. But the story, just the entire concept is where I struggle now that I'm not with a bunch of friends and we haven't probably been drinking. The idea that they have a space station for prisoners seems really extreme and really expensive. And the safeguards were just so like randomly they can open all of them like that that just feels like you should have had this covered i don't there's got to be protocols in place for this and it just all happens so so fast and so ridiculous and there's no real solution other than send one guy up there to get the president's daughter out that's your one solution in space The the story is a reach
0: a local Walmart has more cameras than this supermax outer space prison. Like they have to rely on their negotiator to get there. And by the way, a negotiator? <laughs> what? That coupled with open fires in a pure oxygen environment. I was checked out pretty, pretty quickly in this
6: movie. The case, how they got to the case where it's. This guy's obviously, you know, he's got dementia. He's delusional, whatever the case is. And when Mace is basically rattling off some things while Snow is trying to save Snow, hey, it's different than Snake. It's totally different name. She, she's hearing it and she puts that all together and that's how she finds the, the case. Oh, that was such a reach. <laughs> At no point do I think in the movie, as much as I, I really did like Guy Pierce, like I, there are moments where I'm like, ah, you, you could have really, you really could have made this work. It just, you know, wasn't in the writing or whatever but I don't recall a moment where I felt like I understood why she would be so attracted to him other than he's good looking and he has good arms that he keeps flexing randomly.
0: Cause she has to.
6: That's the only reason because I, I really couldn't find a scene rewatching it. And the first time it didn't bother me as much because I didn't care probably to, to pin, pick it apart. But here I'm looking at it going, there's not a scene yet that I found where she Honestly, seems to really be warm to this guy and think he's a great guy other than, you know, a a couple close, (laughs) close connections to genuine empathy.
2: Them falling in love by the end was just like, why? Just because they're a man and a woman and they're in the same place, I guess.
6: Should have kept him asexual like Snake. If you're going to copy the movie, copy it correctly.
0: And it just continued on after the action was over, like the the scene in the 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 train station where she's slowly you know not since usual suspects we had to watch a coffee cup break three times for somebody to make a res- a revelation like As soon as she walked into a train station, I'm like, oh, it was a locker. Just go to the – that that took forever. And then the we go back to the fucking police station and we find out that this other guy is the actual – who cares? Just get on the station and beat up some bad guys and rescue
2: the thing. That's all we're here for. It wasn't good. It was not good. And I really wish that it had been good because – I think that escape from Earth is a good idea, and that's basically what this movie was, but just I like, didn't know how to execute it at all.
6: You know what's not a good idea? Building a space station just for prisoners.
2: And That's <laughs> true.
6: So stupid. I
2: that's don't
6: understand true. that.
2: Ah! If we have space travel and we're able to do all this stuff, it's going to be like the Elon Musk of the world that are, you know, it's 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 that, I don't like the movie, but it's that Elysium situation where it's the rich people that can afford to leave Earth are going to leave Earth and then leave the rest of it to us savages down here that can't afford to leave.
6: You know what the government of any country is not going to do? Spend a fortune to house them in space. That's what they're not going to (laughs) do. Nobody's going to spring for that. It's like a
0: cryosleep situation, like just
2: put them under the ground here. If they can figure out how to do cryo stuff, yeah, th- this is the perfect time for your Demolition Man prison. And they come out and they're all, their brains are all scrambled and stuff. And yeah, it's something. Like, okay, yeah. Well, that, I mean, than- that's what they, they were proposing, but it really didn't come through that well. I mean, they kind of just should have made
0: it die hard in space and not escape from New York in space. Yeah, he was a
6: prisoner. Something. That would have been I think that would have I still would have had a hard time with why are you spending so much money to put prisoners in space, but <laughs> hey,
2: I' not going away, or they're on a regular space station, and somehow criminals make it up there, and then it's to your point die hard on a space station
6: I don't hate the movie, I just don't it's fine it's whatever it is for what it is it it's a typical look Luke, loopzon Luke movie in terms of Guy Pierce being in it, he is one of my. One of my actors, like there's a few actors where I I point to and I go, That's a guy that always deserved a ten times better career than he ended up with. And that's all this really reminded me of. That he's one of those for me.
2: Agreed. Let's go back and listen to the uh LA Confidential episode if folks want to hear me just singing Guy Pierce's praises because I fucking love this guy and I love, love him. him in so many movies. I mean I am a huge fan of the um, uh, Kevin Reynolds version of um, the Count of Monte Cristo, and he's the perfect villain in that movie. He is wonderful to hate in that film, and yeah, I really like the guy. Genuinely empathize with his characters, but man, it was tough to really get behind them because you know Snake Plissken being. Enigmatic is one thing, but Snake doesn't crack jokes. Yeah, he'll he'll say things that are funny, but he doesn't crack jokes, whereas, to your point, this is like a Ryan Reynolds role. Recast him as Deadpool, and there you go. It's Deadpool in space. It's definitely written that way. I talked a little bit about the ripoffs of the movie, especially the Italian ones. What always reminds me is some of the poster art. Of Escape from New York, there's some really good posters for Escape from New York. There's some bad posters of Escape from New York. There's one that I'm looking at right now, which very much looks like it is not Escape from New York. The, the Whoever drew Snake Plissken didn't really do a good job of that. But the most iconic image from Escape from New York with the the posters is an image that never actually shows up in the movie, <laughs> but that whole idea of the Statue of Liberty's head, I love him standing in front of that.
6: Yeah, that was... I have it on my wall. I'm looking at it right now. It is uh, crazy because you look for that the whole time. The whole time, the first time you watch the movie, if you see the poster before you watch it, and I remember I had seen the poster before I watched the movie, and I remember going, well, when does... When does that happen? Because they actually have shots where you see the Statue of Liberty fully intact. Does that mean somebody's going to, like, sever the head of the Statue of Liberty? This is going to be
2: fucking amazing.
6: And it never happens.
2: I have always wondered if the Statue of Liberty had rolling down the street in um, (laughs) Cloverfield, if that was an homage to Escape from New York.
6: It was. I did read that. J.J. Abrams actually did that as an homage because... He's a, he's a big fan. He loved Escape from New York as a kid. I did read that when I was reading up for this. So, yeah.
2: Okay, good. I'm glad I was able to call that. You are sharp, so, yeah. sir. Woohoo. So many good images, so much good stuff. And yeah, you just can't say enough. I mean, that I'm even sitting here praising the poster of all things.
6: I do love the poster, though. I, I miss the days when you've got art, when you actually get poster art, where it wasn't just a picture of, I don't know, Stallone's face or, or, The Rock's face, they're just looking stoic. Everybody's stoic. I mean, it it was art. It was a great poster.
2: All right, guys. Let's go ahead and take another break, and we're going to play a preview for next week's show.
1: On dark streets, where violence consumes everything it touches, and the innocent live in fear two men dedicated to justice will follow different paths as one searches for revenge and the other for redemption fate will bring them together now for those who hide behind the shadow of corruption only one thing is certain a day of reckoning is coming director of The Killer and Mission Impossible 2. And Tony Leung in one of the greatest action movies ever made. Hard Boiled 2-Disc Ultimate Edition. Look for it on DVD. Exclusively from Dragon Dynasty.
2: That's right. We will be back next week with a look at John Woo's Hard Boiled. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Aaron and Father Malone. So, Father Malone, what is keeping you busy, sir? A
0: lot of business going on over at FatherMalone.com if you want to... uh uh View or listen to any of it. I do a half-hour radio drama called Dark Destinations where we bring listeners to infamous fictional towns. Uh There's also links to the other podcasts I work on and uh my YouTube channel uh where I also review movies just like Escape from New York. Uh So you can hit me up over there.
2: I didn't realize that you had seen Escape from New York. You've never seen it. That's what I hear. Is Snake Plissken secretly Baron Zemo? Is he really? Mephisto? What's going on in Escape from L.A.? Is this all a dream in Snake Plissken's head?
6: Yeah, that's what happened. He's actually, he's dead. It's actually heaven because he died because he got back an hour late. So <laughs> that's what that is.
2: You'll never believe what we found out about Escape from L.A. So Aaron, how about you? What have you been up to?
6: All right, well every week I do The Hollywood Outsider. It's available at the hollywoodoutsider.com or in your favorite podcast app. We review movies uh with a more jovial touch, I think, um, than a lot of podcasts, and we also have a topic each week in film or television um that that we try to discuss we, uh, it's been going on for a long time. So, it's a fun show to do. I also do Presenting Hitchcock, which is you can find it at the com or just Presenting Hitchcock in your podcast apps. And we take an Alfred Hitchcock movie once a month and we kind of just go through it and dissect it and see what we love or didn't love. And then we kind of rate it on what we call the Hitchcock scale. So it's a fun show to do. I actually am just closing up another podcast. We just hit a hundred episodes and we're just wrapping that one up called Smirk. And that is where each week one or one of our hosts, myself or my other two hosts, write a short story And then that short story leads into a conversation on whatever the topic or theme of their short story was. And it's like a short half hour show that's usually a lot of fun.
2: You said that you review films in a a much more upbeat and jovial way. Are you calling me out? i
6: not, not, you not, not your out, show. Man? No, 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 <laughs> That's why I said other podcasts. That's I specifically don't mean I listen to your show, oh, but okay. I've listened to a lot of them where I'm like, God, do you even like movies? Do you even like movies? Why are you talking about films? You obviously don't like
2: them. Those kinds of podcasts. There's a show out there called We Hate Movies. I mean, yeah, what the what hell? The why would you even make on? them? Come on. Why do we care about <laughs> your hatred? You? Why would we ever listen to that show?
6: I like to find the, you know, I like to find the good in it if I can. And that's what we try to do on that one, but not always. There's some, there's some bad shit too. I've got a friend who has a theory that there's no such thing as a bad movie, just movies that aren't good enough for, or just movies that aren't good enough for you. And I'm like, no, there's a lot of really bad movies. I don't, I don't understand that (laughs) that logic.
2: Yeah. I've got a friend who always reminds me, he says, every movie is somebody's favorite movie. No matter how bad it is, somebody out there loves that movie. And sometimes that makes me really sad about the world.
6: (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes people are just wrong, too. It happens. It's okay. Just accept it.
2: Thank you again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, ProjectionBoothPodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon and where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
1: did I teach you? You are
5: Duke of New York. You're uh, A number one.
1: I can't hear you. You
5: are the Duke of New York. You're A number one.